What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you haven't been, uh, well, telling the story of Wildland Fire, well, you better get on it because your opportunity to win one of the Mystery Ranch Backbone Series scholarships ends at the end of this month. Yeah. TikTok, get after it. Yeah, May 31st. Uh, that's going to be your deadline if you want to try and get your hands on one of these $1,000 grants that they are doing for a professional development uh, gig. So if you want to push your career to new heights or if you want to tell the story of Wildland Fire and consequently win one of these grants for pushing your career to new heights, well, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. Yeah, it's the Backbone series. It's also in collaboration with the uh, Wildfire Experience, the American Wildfire Experience. And uh, yeah, they're doing some awesome stuff over there. So I highly suggest that you go over there and check out not only Mystery Ranch, of course, in the Backbone series, but also the AWE, the American Wildfire Experience. It's pretty awesome stuff. And also, if you happen to need some packs or you need anything built for, well, hunting, fishing, camping, backpacking, fire, well, Mystery Ranch has a bunch of solutions for you. They make arguably the best damn packs in the wildfire game, plus so much more. So once again, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that is going to be none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. And if uh, you're not into coffee, if you don't drink coffee, which you're probably a monster if you don't, well, they have a ton of other stuff, like all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, and a ton of wildland firefighter themed apparel if you want to find out more go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full line of kick-ass coffee all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right and all that kick-ass wildland firefighter themed apparel like i said it's a good cause that they support repping uh, some funds over there for the wildland firefighter foundation so once again go over to www hotshotbrewing.com and check them out. And of course, I got to give a quick little shout out to my buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And that stands for the anti-surface shitting movement. Homie's a firefighter up there in AK and he's doing the good deed of spreading poo-bearing propaganda across the globe. I don't know about everybody out there that's listening, but I absolutely hate it when I see a surface turd or someone just doesn't clean up their wreckage left behind their human excrement and it's disgusting and that shit needs to stop. So not only is he one of my very close homies uh, and we work together on some other projects, uh, it's yeah, he's got a good mission and it was all started from humble beginnings, which you can ask him all about. Anyways, if you head over to www.thefirewild and check out the ass movement and use the code anchor point ass 10 at checkout. Well, you can save 10% off your entire order through the ass movement. Go check them out. Once again, that is www.thefirewild.com forward slash the ass movement. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is, well, they're not sponsored by, they're not brought to you by, but it is one of those close relationships I have with Bethany over there at the American Wildfire Experience. And uh, yeah, I just want to show her some love for as long as I possibly can because I believe in her cause and I believe in her mission and she's got some rad stuff going on. And if you don't know what the American Wildfire Experience is, well, they house the Smoky Generation. And I know for a fact, a lot of people out there have seen that rolling around. It's pretty freaking awesome. What it is, is basically a digital storytelling platform uh, telling the story of wildland fire. There's 
quite literally, there's, there has to be like over 250 of these stories out there now, but it's preserving the legacy of the uh, folks in the field and the story of wildland fire. And some of these stories even date back to the 1940s. It's pretty freaking bitching. So if you want a little history lesson, or if you want to sign up for the Smoky Generation grant program, if you got a compelling story and you're telling the story of wildland fire through the lens of a camera, a video camera or a still camera through a blog, through some animations. There was this one dude out there who made uh, we move mountains with spoons and it's freaking kick ass. And they're a smoky generation grant recipient. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Tell the story. It's freaking awesome. Anyways, if you want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and you can check it all out. Once again, www.wildfireexperience.org. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Hope everybody's doing well. So we are on one of the final episodes of the Nevada Bureau of Land Management uh, rundown that we had. I had the pleasure and the opportunity to attend. And I was at the uh, Nevada State preseason meeting over here in uh, Reno, Nevada, over at the GSR. It was pretty sick. But we've covered all the ground resources for uh, what's going on in Nevada. And we are finally at the point where we talk about aviation and all of the aviation stuff that Nevada has to offer. Like I said previously, uh, I got to give some of my love to the Nevada Bureau of Land Management. I uh, cut my teeth here in the state and worked a lot for the Bureau of Land Management. So we're going to cover all of our bases, all the ground resources. And now we're moving to the sky. It's a pretty epic episode. We talk about air attack. We talk about retardant. We talk about uh, one of fire's best kept secrets as far as like job opportunities. Yeah. Tanker bases. Yeah. They're freaking awesome. And we talk about some of the management side and the side of the house that we don't really think about as far as all the inner workings of wildland fire when it comes to having aviation around. But regardless, this uh, episode is pretty damn informative. And also, heads up, I did make a mistake, which uh, Luke, <laughs> Lucas Rea, Lucas Rea, he actually pointed it out. I said that Nevada was the fifth largest state, and it's obviously not. It is the seventh largest state. So my bad. Anyways, feel free to call me out. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our next guests. We're going to have Jeremy Sang. He's a detailed National Aviation Office Flight Operations Program Manager. We have Lucas Ray. He is going to be the Nevada State Office Air Attack and also former uh, Las Vegas Hell Attack Superintendent. Shout out, Las Vegas Hell Attack. And we got, geez, I always mess up your name. <laughs> Alec Gokachia. Uh, he is going to be the detailed Nevada State Aviation Manager. And he is the, also in his, when he's not detailed into this, he is the Elko District UAM, the Unit Aviation Manager. And finally, 
like I said, we're going to have that tanker base manager here, and that is going to be none other than Melissa Fry. She is a single engine air tanker base manager out of Wells, Nevada, and she's got some pretty cool stuff to say about tanker base life. Anyways, y'all know the drill. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All about the sound sync. Makes editing a breeze. Anyways, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got a bunch of aviation folks, which I'm going to have them introduce themselves because I guarantee you I will mess up all of their titles and names. So let's start with you. Jeremy. Good morning. My name is Jeremy Singh. I'm uh, currently on a detail to the National Aviation Office as the Flight Operations Program Manager and was the Nevada State Aviation Manager before that. Nice. Uh, my name is Melissa Fry. Good morning, everybody. I'm from Elko, Nevada, from the Elko District BLM. Been there for 10 years, and I'm the single engineer tanker base manager for the Wells Nevada Seat Base. Morning, I'm uh, Lucas Ray, Nevada State Office Air Attack. And uh, before that, 10 years as a supervisor of Las Vegas Air Attack. And morning, uh, Alec Gogachia. Um, currently on a one year detail as the Nevada State Aviation Manager. Um, when I'm not doing that, my normal job is I'm the unit aviation manager in Elko, Nevada, and been in that position for the last 12 years. Nice. So today's conversations would be all about aviation, particularly in the state of Nevada, right? I've worked with all of you over the course of my career, my short 11 years of being in fire. Worked a lot with you, Lucas, and worked with you as well. I've been to your tanker base, worked with you in Elko. Mm -hmm. And let's just get down to the brass tacks of things like what's going on, what's new in aviation. And we all have a specific kind of thing that we're mm -hmm. in and it's representative of all the aviation program pretty much in Nevada right now right in this room so what's new what are some things that we're looking at for the 2023 fire season well um you know first one we we kind of talked about it yesterday a little bit getting ready for this podcast but um you know a big thing in in Nevada we did uh hire Lucas is a third air attack um and he's located at the state office, but we got two exclusive air attacks in Nevada. Um, and uh, Nevada BLM, you know, we've, we've been into really into the mental health in our employees. And um, when Jeremy was a state aviation manager, he realized that our air attacks were, uh, they were working a lot. Um, tough to get, yeah, yeah we yeah. got to tough to get air attacks in for relief and get those folks, you know, the, time they need to take off and, um, you know, hopefully more than two days. Um, you know, so he worked with our management state office and, um, we brought in a third air attack. Um, at the same time, all those air attacks got uh, promoted up to the GS 11 level, um, permit full-time. Um, so two good things there and, um, bringing in Lucas gives us that third person to, you know, give days off for those two exclusive use air attacks we have across the state. So, um, in the air attack world, that's huge. Um, I'm sure Lucas can add on to that. So, but that's, um, one big thing that that's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. We, whether it's Nevada or, uh, across the BLM, uh, between us, uh, Utah and Idaho, we all, the intent was to add an extra air attack to, to each state to help, help out with exactly that staffing, um, allowing people to go out to work on different qualifications, uh, move forward in their career. And, and then, yeah, to get some breaks during the summer. Uh, big problems in the past have been, you know, we don't have the people to move into these positions. The uh, number of air attacks that we have as a militia uh, or AD 
uh, workforce are all just, yeah. you know, getting older and not, not participating anymore. And it's, I mean, like, last summer like Booker, I know Booker quite well. He's like one of my homies. So yeah, exactly. Booker, he's always up here. Yeah. Booker yeah. helped us out a lot last summer, essentially staffing the the Reno platform after the, the previous air attack retired. And then, uh, I came in after him and helped, uh, finish out the season, but, uh, you know, the people that are coming through and the number of people we can bring in, it's, uh, it's tough. And even last summer, and there were a couple of days that we just had to basically shut the plane down because no we shit. couldn't, we couldn't find staffing for it. And the same thing happened in, I was helping cover in Salt Lake as well. And that was the same, same issue. You just couldn't find people to come in or, you know, when you do, it's, uh, it's tough to piece, uh, two or three days here, two or three days there for people who want, uh, who want a, a longer commitment, right. And it's yeah. tough to, to, to get somebody mobilized for just two or three days on a plane. So yeah like Add, in, adding the positions it's super big deal oh yeah well i mean air attacks are it's a very specific thing too and it's a high level thing operationally right you're, pl- you're practically a flying ic3 at that point i'm using that term loosely of course it's right. more or, or less than that you know it's very specific but there's not a lot of air attacks out there in the first place so adding expansion to those capabilities especially with the fifth largest state in the in the union it's pretty critical to operational efficiency and safety as well. The eyes in the sky. I mean, that's definitely helpful for gathering SA and, you know, getting into areas or tracking roads or access or whatever. There's a lot of things that air attack can do, but if you don't have enough of them, well. well. And you're also assessing the qualifications that it takes to get it to air attacking, right? So your IC3 division soup, you know, your career is path this way. And then you need to dedicate your time and efforts into a, a, a mission like air attacking. And then you get a position. And so previously as a GS9 career seasonal, these dudes are topping out right there, but their division and IC3, the same kind of quality you would use to get to an AFMO. So the 12, 13 level. Uh, so looking at ways to up that for them. Um, the hard part was we did it pretty much at the same time as our agency partners mm-hmm. and they hired a bunch. And so there was a lot of shuffling going around that we still haven't shaken all the way out. Yeah. And I understand that the Air Attack Academy is quite difficult as well, too. So you have to qualify and then there's like a washout rate, right? It's pretty high or? Yeah, for sure. You know, you have to, one, you have to do the qualification, do the things you need to do to get in there. So you have to come in with a division, essentially a division supervisor or IC3 qualification, apply to the academy, do mission observation flights to lead into it. And, you know, there's 16 spots every year. There's one Air Attack Academy that the feds mostly use one that we put on in Mesa every, every spring. And then there's one in California Casa that, that we can send people to. Um, but you're talking about it, just such a small number of people that come through. And then the number of people that we've had in the past that actually go all the way through to finish is, uh, you know, it's kind of a struggle sometimes because all of these folks that come through, they could be a crew supervisor from a health tech crew or a hotshot crew and they have responsibilities mm-hmm. with their own job as well. And yeah. so, you know, it's tough sometimes to get everyone all the way through the qualification and, uh, and it takes a long time to get to build the quality to even start the process to start applying to get into the academy. I think I got signed off as an air attack in 2019 and that was, I think, my 18th fire season. And so, yeah, it just takes time and and a lot of perseverance to be able to get into the into the academy and then more perseverance to get through the qualification. And it's kind of morphed, too. So, it, I mean, now there's a big focus on speedy currency and then the commitment from your home unit to make sure that you have, you know, a considerable amount of time dedicated to going and working on this skill set. Um, so it's not just go to Academy and then maybe pick up one or two assignments. You're actually going to go out and 
marry up with somebody for quite a bit of time to kind of get through there. Kind of like a detail, like mm-hmm. you're going to be yeah. there for 120 days practically. Yeah. yeah. So Jed, Jed's the national aerial supervision program manager, and he has three national office detailers for this season coming up just for that purpose in particular is just to, for the management structure. No, to like actually detail those air attack trainees oh, gotcha. to make sure we can focus on getting them qualified. So it's pretty, pretty good stuff. He's got going on. Yeah. Nice. And so the air attack platforms, I mean, they can go anywhere within the region, right? They're not exclusively like bound to Nevada per se. They can go anywhere in region four. That's kind of like a shift in the last I don't know, decade. So when I started in Salt Lake with uh, the air attack platform there, it was pretty much a local only, you know, yeah. local district, maybe go help somebody for a fuel cycle or something. Uh, but there's big and a big shift between the seats, the air attacks, the regional control. We move stuff around a lot more now. It's uh, definitely a more flexible and dynamic. And now, Melissa, you're kind of on the ground shuffling these aircraft around mm-hmm. and basically staging all these aircraft and making sure that they're ready. All the all the seats are ready, everything else involved with the aviation program. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those very underlooked and underappreciated things is the tanker base side of things, because how much especially in region four with the great base and fuel component, I'm going to say it retardant wins the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, we put out a lot of fire with retardant here. And we use a lot of seats, especially here in the Great Basin. Um, they're, you know, essential for what we do. And then on the air attack side of it is if we don't have air attacks, we can't send certain levels of pilots as well. So that can be an issue. Um, if we have level two pilots and they can't go to a fire because there's no aerial supervision, we're kind of kind of screwed in helping out them on the ground. So mm-hmm. that's an issue. Um, biggest issue for us lately has been staffing. So you can go to any tanker base out there and most of them are short staffed. We've been lucky to be able to keep good staffing here in Elko, in Elko district. Um, With the new staffing matrix, we are now like required to have X amount of people at our tanker bases. So that's been really helpful to get the support from management to be like, okay, we need three people minimum, no matter what, seven day staffing. And so we've been getting really good support to be able to find the funding for that. Yeah. Um, Now we can get people that maybe don't have fire line experience. We can get them all the way up to a GS six as a ramp manager. If they want to get higher than that, they have to have, you know, their 90 days fire experience. But it's been nice to be able to get people in as a three, four, five and bring them right up the ladder. And then now the tanker base managers, seat managers used to just be, you know, larger tanker bases were eight nines. So now seat managers are able to be nine. So we have a ladder to go up to management from there. So. With all, all of these things of the aviation playing together, right? Because it's from the ground to the air and back down, right? To the boots yeah. on the ground. There's a lot more. I've seen a lot more pipelining of career paths with aviation, tanker bases, engine crews, even, you know, crews like hand crews too. Like what's the biggest thing that you see as far as availability and trying to expand people's uh, career paths into getting into, say, air attack or hell attack or a ramp manager, base manager, all that stuff, a UAM maybe. Like what do you guys see as far as improvements for diversifying that that experience as a first level firefighter, like you're planning out your career? So I think, you know, working in Salt Lake, because that, that was a big eye opener. I'd been in cruise and hell attack getting up to that point and I just kind of rolled the dice to get out of where I was at. And, you know, it really kind of opened up the whole, you know, we talk about retardant, right? When I got there, it was a bunch of ADs. It'd be like one AD might be retired running a show with two airplanes and very questionable, you know? And so like looking at it, assessing 
hey, what's the complexities here? How do we make this right? Because as soon as we went to a geographic asset with the seats and the air tax, you know, you could have two seats previously and that's all you would ever have. So it was kind of a manageable workload. Now with the geographic assets, it could be wells and they have two seats in the morning and by lunchtime, there's eight seats there. And so the workload is definitely complex a lot. And so how do we get these people up and trained up? And so they got to park planes, they got to be a ramp manager, they got to be a seat manager. And then how do you get them from the seat manager level to the UAM level? Yeah. Because not every district has Elatech crew, seats, air attacks. Yeah. And so we need more UAMs to help support the system, to get the mission done. And so it's kind of just a multifaceted, like everybody needs a pipeline. Yeah. And then train to a standard, right? And Melissa's one of our best, you know, at the the seat based training and ramp training and fixed wing parking. Yeah. Well, it just seems like you're organizing chaos. I mean, that's all we would kind of all do, whether you're on an engine, a hand crew, a hell attack crew. But I, for some reason, I'm kind of stuck on the fact that aviation is one of the most chaotic career paths that you can have. I mean, especially as like an air attack, man, you're just coordinating airspace. It's like, holy shit, what are you guys doing? How do you handle this? I used to say that, like, I think FMOs and ICs think that retardants just like fairies and, and shimp like leprechauns that are loading these planes. They have no, no clue of all the work that goes into getting that onto the fire. Yeah. Because it is definitely kicks your butt. If you don't know. Oh yeah. I think you talked about the pipeline. So moving, you know, all of our base managers are at that nine level, eight, nine. Um, by making that change, you know, that it's given them now we've got another asset in Nevada that can move into that UAM position at the 11 level. So, you know, where are those, Maybe seat managers who have a ton of experience couldn't make that jump. They had to find some other, you know, go be a tanker base manager and get your time as a nine. Um, now they are that. So we just it gave us another thing. And Elko is a good example. We, you know, luckily we have a lot of, we got three assets. So, you know, there is an RTO. We got three GS9s that if that GS11 UAM comes vacant, we got three hopefully good applicants right there locally. They can apply for it. And so. that's back to the work-life balance and home life and mental health is, you know, I, I moved to like six different states to get where I am. And <laughs> that's just not the norm anymore, right? No. Your, your lists don't look that way when you're out hiring. And so how can we help foster that within so folks don't have, so Melissa wouldn't have to move to Stead yeah. to be a tanker-based manager just to go back to Elko someday to the UAM. She could stay there and still have the same opportunities. I don't know. Camp Kid Will is kind of fun. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> it's awesome. tanker base. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyways. You, you'll see that like what they talk about with the uh, with, with the expanded staffing and the and the balance. I saw it on when I supervised the Helitech crew as these positions got added and they saw different paths to move up to towards that eleven or yeah that eleven level. Right, so I had uh, squad leaders that were starting to work on tanker based qualifications or uh, Sadie Hines, who's uh, the seat base manager at Mesquite. She was on our crew for four seasons yeah and then the same thing there was some exposure and then she would ask hey can i spend some time away from the crew to go work on these uh tanker based quals and we'd let her go and like you said it's just exposure whether it's from engine folks or crew folks uh again when i ran the crew the same with you it was just opening up hey we have some spots open we can take some detailers and you came down and that worked out for you to come down and work with us on more than one occasion yeah just uh, and that was it. Just keeping the door open to to give people the opportunity to try something else out, especially people that are new in their fire career. For me, when I when I was in that super supervisory position, it was just the exposure. I'm letting them see and try try things out that they weren't used to. They'd been on a hot shot crew for three or four years. Come come over, try this for a detail, or then a season, and then yeah, you can see the 
the ways that you can build qualifications or expand your horizons, right? Just give yourself opportunities was, was, is pretty key. And the aviation just has so many different avenues that you can take to, to build those opportunities and move up. It seems like there's a lot more uh, flexibility built in with the aviation program than, uh, you know, especially like a hotshot crew, the crew life, right? And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of aviation. I was a hell attacker and I've worked with you on Vegas, uh, or Vegas uh, hell attack. I worked with um, Bridgeport hell attack, friendly rivalry there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, Ely hell attack. I mean, it, it, the opportunities in aviation, I think are one of those underlooked things because everybody wants to stick with operations, right? Everybody wants to go operational. They become a lifer. And it's like this, this mindset. It's like, yeah, I just want to be a, a career yeah. hotshot, but there's a big ass world out there as far as opportunities, even to tanker bases and back to, well, let's clarify some stuff first for the folks that don't know what these acronyms meant. So UAM, unit aviation, aviation Un yeah. manager, unit aviation and then RTO, manager. RTO. Reverse tool or no, <laughs> you were saying some of the other, <laughs> some other thing, some other um, acronym in there. What'd I throw out there? UAM. I'm not sure, man. Anyways, well, um, but yeah, I mean, it's these things that's because I'm a firm believer in, I guess, working smarter and kind of like understanding the longevity of your body and what you have available because this is a very physical yeah. job, the operational component, right? Operational component. So when you get into the point of your life where you're either A, wanting to having kids or buy that house or kind of settle down with your wife or girlfriend or whatever you have those opportunities out there. Yeah, you're going to be getting your ass kicked and working a ton of hours at a tanker base. You're going to be getting your ass kicked as a UAM, yeah. but you have those opportunities to be somewhat local and your body's not going to last forever. If you take one bad fall or take a rock to the chest or blow out your knee, you're pretty much done for the season. So diversifying your career is going to be important. Um, with the help of Jeremy saying, Sadie and I and Joe Miller ended up creating a Nevada Seed Academy that we put on down in Mesquite every year. And it gives everybody an opportunity to kind of see what we do. We do an overview of like mix master, retardant crew member, fixed wing parking tender, ramp manager. And it's kind of nice because um, Sadie needs a lot of help down there. So we end up bringing a lot of militia folks from the local BLM Forest Service. And it gives an opportunity for Helitech because they're not out already. Mm -hmm. So they're able to come up and we just give everybody an overview of what we do. And they absolutely love it. I mean, we bring out retardant and we check, you know, refracts and measure the salt content and what it's going to do out on the fire. So it's, it's a pretty cool program. So this will be our second year yep. doing it. So, um, we tried to bring in all the seasonals from all the tanker bases that have never maybe parked a plane and use actual live aircraft. Cause they're the first ones on for the year, mm -hmm. be able to go move them around and they get a good eye opener of what their season's going to be like. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, things, things definitely change, especially when rotors are turning or if there's turbines firing up, right? It's yeah. like, yeah. especially, I mean, I've probably been guilty of this and probably everybody who's worked with aviation has been guilty of this, but it's just like, holy shit, this is real. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like shocking at first, but then you get used to it, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Mixmaster, the retardant stuff, let's talk about retardant. Now, how many gallons of retardant does Nevada pump out per year on average, you think? That's a it's pretty big question. I, I don't really like to talk about gallonage just because I think that's a large air tanker forest service special thing. Yeah. I'm more about the mission. So how many takeoffs and landings, how many sorties we're flying we in go. that regard. I mean, in 2018, Melissa flew like drum roll. What 795 was it? missions yeah. out of Wells. If you've ever been to Wells, Wells Nevada. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was, it would be like flying 4 million gallons out of stead. 
you know, like just astronomical amount of missions. That's how we, that's how Nevada fights fire with, you know, especially with, with uh, Doggett and everybody, like they show up on these fires, send us six seats, two heavies and Mm -hmm. two VLATs. And that's who gates work, you know? So all that mission falls back on these guys. If you're flying almost 800 missions, like your staffing and the amount of experience that's needed for that in such a small combined area, super important. And it's super risky and it's super dynamic and it's loud and it's fast paced. So being dialed in with all the ramp operations, that's critical to success of everybody out there. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as retardant goes, like I, I don't know the technicalities because I've never worked with retardant except for like, you know, directing aircraft to drop it on fire. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're in the mixing stage of things, let's take it from like there to when it gets loaded on the plane and the plane takes off. I didn't know that there was like a specific ratio of water to mix and all this crap going in. It's pretty technical work when it goes into like, when you go into mixing this retardant, yes. it, it directly affects the, the, uh, efficiency of application. Right. Yes. Let's talk about that. Um, oof. go back to mixing days, huh? We're all, <laughs> <laughs> most of us are full service now, which is really nice. So we bring in a crew that does all our mixing and loading for us, but, mm-hmm. um, we provide a liquid concentrate. Um, people call it retardant. It's not retardant until it's actually mixed with water. So it's five and a half parts of water to one part of liquid concentrate. And then that's where we get the certain, um, refract of salt content that we need. Refract was refract. A refractometer is just a visual sight tube that measures the salt content in the the test. Mm -hmm. And so you're shooting for like, shoot for that. It's like 24 or something like that, or 32, something something in that range. But you just look through and there's a little line. Okay. And so that's, it's batch mixing. So it's like measuring beer. I'm a beer maker. Yeah. 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 So it's a refractometer yeah. for measuring your alcohol content yeah. and your sugar yep. content. Okay. And there's different ways. There's mixing on the fly, which goes through a machine and blender micro motion, but we don't know. We didn't always have that coming up. So we did a lot of batch mixing in seat world. And so you'd make these big bats essentially. And so yeah. the best way to test it was just to grab salt content, you know? And so now there's actually some technology and all the bases have micro motion as well. Yeah. Micromotion. So micromotion is what measures the density, like the density of the product. And then that's kind of like our refract. So we get to between a certain number. And then if it's too heavy, you know, we'll have to, you know, change our valves to bring in more water. But it's a certain amount of weight that those pilots and those aircraft can take. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the best refract, I guess, or salt content that's actually going to be productive on the ground. So we have a certain um, number, you know, that we need to get in between. If not, it's too heavy. Mm-hmm. I think it's like 8.9 pounds per gallon, you know, without, with, when it's mixed retardant. Whereas so. just water alone is about seven. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's pretty heavy. I think the it's like 12. like 12. So if you load 700 gallons, your, your payload is going to be off at max growth. So it's pretty important if you get their weights right, you know? Yeah. But if you'd have told me 10 years ago, I was spending this much time talking about retardant, <laughs> I probably would have punched you. <laughs> It'll kick your butt, man. I mean, when it's, you know, yeah. 95 degrees, 100 degrees in wells, our density altitude is about 10,000, mm-hmm. 10,000 feet. So, a, you know, 800 gallons, it's 12 pounds is going to be, they're not getting off the ground. So, yeah. yeah. Especially with, yeah, with how hot it gets. And, and a lot of people underestimate Nevada, I think, especially outsiders. And like, we start at 5,000 feet and go up to 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. 12,000. It's, it's pretty steep and gnarly terrain out here. And when you're flying in those conditions, even on a rotor wing or if, like it's, it's gnarly, you get these gnarly updrafts, you get these gnarly canyons. It's very technical and the hazards are there. So if your, your load calc is off, 
it's not going to be good. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of reports and findings from that same stuff. I mean, whether it's overgrossed aircraft with retardant or helicopter load calculations not done correctly, I mean, you don't have to go very far back. So mm-hmm. it's definitely something that everybody keeps in the front of their mind. Yeah. So we, we set a really high precedence on our training when it comes to ramp operations. You know, I mean, if you don't have that there, we are not being able to provide a product to these air attacks when they order six to eight to 10 seats. Mm-hmm. We had a fire last year. We timed out eight seats, brought two more on for the last two hours of the day. You cycled them out through the duty cycles. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. So eight hours, you know, seven plus hours of flying. Yeah. Can't go over eight. Um, but we take pride in that, making sure that if he's calling and wanting seats, we can be able to do all that. Yeah. So let's get back to the, I guess, let's get back to the retardant question here. I know this is more of a forest service issue um, that, that like they've ceased retardant operations on forest land. So there's like rumor that that's happening. I know that doesn't really apply to the Bureau of Land Management. I don't know if you guys could speak on that at all. If you've heard anything or. I've, I've heard of a anything. lawsuit. Yeah, that's it. It's just. Yeah. Okay. No, there is one, but the, the, <clears throat> other than that, nothing. So surprisingly, Nevada. I mean, everybody sends nuclear waste here. It's like, yeah, you know, like that's what everybody thinks. The but nation's dumping. Nevada's ground. EPA is like super tight, and so Luke, or uh, Alec, and I spent a lot of time doing road trips around Nevada with Nevada EPA and whatnot, and building that must standards. Have been so much fun, uh, dude! You just <laughs> learn stuff, and you're like, why, man? I used to like just sharpen a tool or a chainsaw, and now I'm like talking about chromium and you know stormwater pollution plans and i'm like it's crazy it's like decisions bro um but back to the story is like the the manufacturer of the current product actually worked on a new product for nevada specifically and it's kind of gone national now but it takes the the bad stuff out of the retardants so the cadmium chromium come out the heavy metals yeah and so you're just i mean there's still some nitrogen and and stuff that you got to concern with with uh, Mm -hmm. leaching but it it definitely helped with our concern for yeah. uh, the retardant issues, because it wasn't even the forest component. It was more of managing byproducts and like ponds and wash down. It was just eating us up because the standards are, or the restrictions and standards are so high, you know, trying to hold that line. Yeah. Yeah. We put back in the day, I mean, I think we put sea bases everywhere, every airport we could in Nevada. Um, like the mobile seat bases, the trailers and yeah, stuff like I mean, that, mobile just, mixing. Every airport. They would, be, like they would have retardant atoms. They had retardant. Round. We had oh, wow. tanks there. So um, maybe four years ago we started. Yeah. When I got here in 18, I, I tell people this story. I was up at NIFSI in the ops side and they have this wall with each state and all the resources in that state. And I glanced over in Nevada and it said something like freaking 13 seat bases. Yeah. And I was like, Dude, I had no idea, and I just got the job. <laughs> I didn't even like, know we had 13 no. airports that can support <laughs> operations for aircraft. <laughs> so we're down to six now. Yeah, we've cleaned up, worked with the APA. I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of money. To, I can only imagine, man. You know, Actually, clean up everything. And, uh, yeah, so now, yeah, now we're, we got Stead. Battle Mountain is our two heavy bases. And then we got Wells, Mesquite, and Winnemucca is our seat bases. And focus our money and efforts there um, instead of having all kinds scattered we had to, about. We had so. to do a lot of cleanups because managing that year round, like if you're not recirculating, I mean, it just turns into hazardous waste. You got cleanups and I mean, millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a great idea, you know, but at some point, if you don't have the staff to like manage it and take care of it, and make it their own, then it goes bad. And then you have this larger issue. So now we're, we're trimmed down, staffed up, training high. 
I remember uh, coming back from a role when I was on Ely Hell Attack and uh, the mixing station there at Caliente. The one of the hoses decided to sun rot or whatever, and it <laughs> was one of the pass through, one of the bypass hoses from tank to tank for the mixing. I, I'm assuming that's what it was. That thing burst and it dumped every gallon of retardant into the holding tank, like the little dike that goes yeah. around it, right? And it was a horrible cleanup. <laughs> we had to call in specialists. It was practically a hazmat scenario, but I, I don't know if it's classified as We like had that hazmat. same thing happen to McDermott, I don't know, two years yeah. ago. We had an AD, and, and this is always, you know, just the question, like, all right, you got to send people with each other because this guy went out here, started up the pumps to recirculate, had to go take, you know, number deuce and like <laughs> just left and comes back and it's just a geyser. And none of it got in the containment area. It was all over. I mean, it was probably a $300,000 cleanup oh, after shit. it was all said and done. Right. Mm -hmm. And just because you left the pump running to go to the restroom. Right. Like, mm -hmm. so that's back to that training standards and, you know, like not making the same mistakes over and over and over because it is a huge pain in the butt and it doesn't help the yeah. state as a whole. And our it's containments were never made. The containments we had, we just built and they were, we never designed them to hold all the retardant. You, you saw the one when you were on either. Oh yeah, either it was contact, overflowing so. and just, yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Mesquite's really dialed, they got a great containment mm -hmm. system. Um, and then Winnemuck and Wells, um, we're in the process right now and received money and we're redoing the ramps there our containments we'll have evap ponds <clears throat> so spend a lot of money to those locations to do it right so if we do have a spill or something like that we're going to be able to you know clean it up properly and um just do what's right yeah i didn't know that it had like heavy metals at it in it at one point i know that they're taking it out with a lawsuit and everything like that and i don't know much about it so i'm not going to dwell on the, the subject but when I was cleaning that stuff up, it just stunk like piss. It was just. It'll burn. Like if you have. Yeah. You know, from the yeah. yeah. If you get it on your skin for too long. And we, we ended up having to go get like muck boots. Like it's practically waders. The old way through this shit. And it's Sang and I have cleaned I, up our. Fair I share. absolutely hate retarding. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> special place in hell. Like I know it's there for a reason and we got, we got shit to do, but like. If there's one more thing, I would just say screw it, and we're just going water only. <laughs> like I'm so over it. Like just just all the stuff that goes into it, and then the components of it's not the actual product. It's just you have to manage it, right? You yeah. have to do all this stuff, and then you know, we love scoopers. Who would have thought Nevada would love scoopers, right? Yeah. We had we had a big year, and the scoopers came in, dude. Just like save the day, water yeah. only. It hits our mission profile as well as direct attack. You know, if we got mobile attack and direct line instead of building contingency line across the Great Basin, you know, we're just going head on and the scoopers were just crushing it with us. Oh yeah. Then go half wing, half out or half wing in, half wing out on your line and just, just crush it. And they got like an IR camera right in the nose. Oh, they so do? Like, yeah, they actually see their target through the smoke. I mean, it's pretty awesome. Like some good dudes. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them over at uh, the Minden base all the time and I've seen them occasionally over in uh, like Winnemucca. So only only yep. purpose-built aircraft in the fleet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one thing that I heard, and I didn't know if that was uh, true or not, but you kind of just confirmed it there, that the Super Scooper is the only firefighting dedicated aircraft ever designed and developed, ever. Yeah. Fucking wild, man. So, as far as, like, the safety component of retardant, since we're on it, there's one thing that I absolutely hate, and it's seeing folks try and get the glory shot, do it for the gram see the seat drop in the background and let's talk about the safety component of retardant drops since we're on the subject. Mm -hmm. 
what's your guys' professional opinion? I mean, I don't really have one. I think, uh, you know, as an air attack, we're asking people to clear the line. And that's a, that's a moment where, yeah, man, you want to stay out of the way of that drop just yeah. for your own safety. But if you're being pulled off the line while a couple seats go through and you take a picture, that's like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm talking say, about yeah. like purposely getting hit by the drop. That's, oh, yeah. that's, no, that's asinine. Yeah, yeah, that's bad. I mean, if you get close enough and a pilot sees you, all they're going to do is they're going to go around. And then that just means we have to bring them back into the orbit or backed up to their maneuvering altitude. And they have to come back around and work through that when we have, you know, seats or tankers stacked up for days waiting to come in and just get them in and be, you know, effective and efficient with our retardant operations. And if, you know, if anyone sees that, if a lead plane sees somebody out on the line, they're going around mm -hmm. seats on their own, any tanker on their own. If they see somebody on the line, if they think they're even close, they're going around because they don't want to drop on top of any, mm -hmm. anybody. Right. We get the visibility component for Nevada because usually it's, you know, lower brush unless you get into like the subalpine stuff, you know, but yeah, exactly. For the most part. Yeah. You got pilots got visibility. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to be able to see you, uh, yellow shirts, helmets, things that reflect, like they'll, they'll see you when they get down low because they're getting low to, to execute these drops and, and they'll go around and it just, it kind of, it'll ball up everything that the air attack has going on with uh, just one go around. Right. So, yeah. you know, if, if you want to take your pictures, stay out of the way, yeah. right. It's fine. But yeah, that's uh don't, don't get in the way it. And it's, I mean, it's not good at eat your clothes. Like we just talked about, Tears it's going to burn your up, skin. Man. It's uh yeah. I mean, it's inevitable at some point, I mean, that you get dropped on, that you aren't in a spot where you see where they're mm -hmm. going to drop. Somebody misses the line. There's, you know, drift. wind drift. You know, there's a lot Air of reasons. that walked on with their traffic. Yeah, and exactly. Hear, like, through the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, there's things that happen, you know, and sometimes it's unavoidable. But we don't want to definitely don't want to make it like a practice that, yeah. that people are out there. And so. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of kinetic energy coming out of those planes. I mean, they're hauling ass. They're what? What's the average drop for a seat? Like height wise, uh, I don't know. Like sixty and above. I don't pilot discretion probably. I know it's low. You're supposed. To, there's things that you know if you look it up. There's heights that they're supposed to drop from, and I don't have them memorized. There's committed a correct to memory, answer. But there is yeah. a correct answer. <laughs> I guess I got to talk to the seat pilot yeah. for like your your coverage levels and altitude and all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, it, goes into it. I mean, have this. I have the SAS in my backpack that says what heights they're going to drop from, but I do not have that memorized. You copy that. That was an honest answer. Yeah. yeah. I was well, like, the, I don't want to make it up. Yeah. Right. yeah. Someone will call bullshit. <laughs> yeah, right. That's but, right. I'm going to get a call from one of the other, <laughs> some other air attack that's like, you don't know this? I'm like, hey, man, How dare you? You're a disgrace to the aviation program. <laughs> this is it's April. But drop so, height is a, is a big deal. I mean, yeah. we've, we've had some fatalities in the past couple of years. And yeah. You know, not intentionally. I mean, the, uh, the fatality that we had from Salt Lake City over in California, mm -hmm. you know, they just didn't know that they were coming in. You know, he was a task force, right? Like, when does the task force get injured, right? Yeah, usually they're not even on the line. Yeah. And so it's... it's uh, <laughs> Just kidding. It, it happens, right? You know, I mean, I remember getting hit, like, in the black. Like, I wasn't anywhere near a line. And yeah. I see came over the ridge and just center punched me and knocked me. I mean, oh, yeah. It was a life up, lesson. Yeah. Right? And... You know, we try to pass that on, but I know I work, I mean, I work with uh, lead playing groups for the BLM and ASM groups. And so I got to fly last year with those guys and seeing their flight profile and how they're controlling the line. Because one of the, I mean, a little bit of a difference between the BLM force service, all the BLM pilots are 
or fire qualified, right? Like mm-hmm. They're IC3, divisions, air attacks, and then they go be a pilot. And so they have a lot of line experience. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for that stuff. They know and, what's up, yeah. And they're verbalizing it and clearing the line if air attack's not. And, you know, it's it's definitely pretty on the front of everybody's mind. Yeah. And I know there's been some fatalities and it's uh, even like secondary fatality causes, right? So like treetops getting knocked yeah. out. And then, no, that was in Northern California, one of the uh, mechanisms of uh, injury there. But when you're talking about, would you say nine something pounds per gallon, which is significantly more than water coming at you at whatever their speed is in knots and very low to the ground. It's not like that a retardant has the opportunity to dissipate and slow down and reach terminal velocity, right? Have you seen the it's Forest Service ass. video? Yeah, yeah. It's Actually, like one of my Ford buddies expedition. helped produce that. Oh, yeah. yeah. The yeah. Uh, ST. Yeah. ST just like yeah. center punching that that freaking, yeah. was it? It's an expedition or something. an expedition. Like yeah. Gnarly. Yeah. And it just rips that thing in half like a like an empty beer can. Yeah. yeah. I've so, seen the same thing from the crane. They have a video of a crane doing the same thing to a vehicle. So, I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter what. What you're looking at, you're getting a thousand gallons of whatever. Should put that in one thirty one ninety. Yeah, thrown at you. I mean, and there's things when we talk to alp height seats. Really, when we're talking retardant, you know, we want to have a good drop height. Mm-hmm. We don't want them too low or too fast because then you get shadowing behind each bush, right? And then if you're in cheatgrass and you get a shadowing behind the sagebrush, it's going to come right through there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're on the ground, you're seeing that and you you look at the retardant line because you're going to be walking behind them right and helping secure yeah. the line that's that's what we want with retardant this application doesn't put out the fire you yeah still gotta like, follow it up and that's it exactly it like number one question is an air attack it's like all right we want you to put retardant here and it's like okay when are you gonna have people in there yeah is it now or is it gonna be later yeah. right so that's gonna you know again we want to be effective and efficient with retardant application but if you see that on the ground that you see hey that that Aircraft look like it dropped a little bit low, and then you see shadow behind. That's something for sure. And it's such a technical aspect, right? Like, I've learned a lot, you know, talking about the retardant, but the piloting of that, right? If you're dropping downhill Mm -hmm. and you're dropping 700 gallons, that's a, that's, you know, 7,000 pounds almost. And your aircraft's performance changes dramatically immediately. So you're dropping downhill, the aircraft wants to shoot up. So you're just sticked over. You know, dropping all this, trying to keep your same height speed. It's not it's not as easy as it looks in the movies, right? Like yeah, hell no, it isn't, man. These pilots are I don't know how they get into this cockpits of, of their freaking planes, man. It's just like they got some some I'm gonna say they got some balls, man. It, yeah. It's to fly in mountainous terrain like this in austere conditions with all these thermal convection like things coming off the fire battling visibility and then try and nail the drop that takes a level of skill and expertise that just is unsurpassed yeah. it's freaking crazy not every not all of them make it either no. you'll get one season they do one fire and they're like i'm done yeah and they'll just figure out how to get the plane back i mean i mean it's happened and some are some are lifers and they're still doing it it's been 30 some years so and yeah. seats seats are in particular like most of the large air tankers you can be a co-pilot for years right so you are learning on the job. The seat guys coming in, they're single pilot, single cockpit. And now they're, now they're learning the task saturation, right? Like now they have radios, people are talking and directions and patterns and fire traffic areas. And they've been out flying and spraying ag and coming into this. And so they do a train up with their vendor or their company. But once you get on scene and, you know, see a ripping fire, things change, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's crazy because like, aside from all the mountainous flying stuff like that, it's, it's, 
it's hazardous. Like any, any piloting, whenever you step into an aircraft, whether it's rotor wing or fixed wing, it's dangerous. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's the nature of the game, but is it a, a very efficient way, uh, especially in Nevada where civilization is two, 300 miles away sometimes. Yeah. It's great for getting on scene. It's mm-hmm. great for putting out fire and great for wrapping things up all in one little package. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so. I think it's the way you do it. Right. And I mean, I'm, uh, I like the way Alec had built up the Elko model and, you know, we worked a lot on starting aircraft earlier, mm-hmm. you know, so they're not, yeah. cause there's also a, a rancher component, right? I mean, we have a lot of grazing in Nevada. Oh yeah. And so if they don't see stuff flying until 10 or 11 o'clock, they're like, what are you guys doing? Right. And so you're getting pressure from that because that's burning up, you know, the grass that they need for feed. There's a value risk. Yeah. Right? There's, a, there's the value there. And so you're looking at the, the, you know, the meteorological component, the weather's cleaner, you know, the air's smoother. Fire's not as drastic, you know, you're dropping retardant at five o'clock at night and there's a column. The effectiveness is definitely not as, as, uh, prevalent. So I think that there's a, there's a a definite bonus to hitting it hard early. Oh yeah. So let's move it back to hell attack. So you've been a superintendent for how many years again? Uh, it was 10 years in in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. So what are some new things on the hell attack front? Like I know you're kind of out of the game in that regard and you're kind of passing that torch, but some new things that are coming down the pipeline for uh, Nevada Hell Attack programs. You know, I think uh, Nevada from has always been a leader in the aviation in the aviation program, really. Uh, I think I'm trying to think what year we had a meeting, I think 2000 and leading into 2015. So it must have been probably. Yeah, 2014, somewhere in there, we uh, we got asked by the state fire leadership, right at the national at the state office, to to come up with a way to increase our uh, capacity to bring in on call aircraft when the conditions warrant and when the activity warranted. We're talking like PL five, yeah, or, or PL four, yeah, about. exactly. Yeah. And then when when it gets tougher to bring outside resources in, and then it's like, hey, well, we can send up another helicopter and staff it with our crews. And uh, so this, we came together, everyone listened to what we had to say, right? And what we thought was going to help us get to that model. And so we increased our staffing to, uh, on, on a type three helicopter program, a supervisor, two assistants, two squad leaders, and two leads. So seven people. And since then, I think at least in Las Vegas, we added another position um, to get to eight career positions on one type three helitech crew, These which is PFTs, a, right? Um, or P, PFT and then permanent seasonal, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, then that was what, eight years ago now yeah. that we've been running that model and using it effectively to help our staffing bring, just like we we're talking about it, opportunity wise, bringing people up through the program. Mm-hmm levels that you can start, you know, four or five, all the way up to the nine, assuming people, you know, move around sometimes, but yeah. And then, and that was, uh, when we went to, I think that fall, when I went to the Helitech committee meeting and said, you know, what does Nevada have to report? I'm like, Hey, we're going to seven career positions on each of our Helitech crews. It was like crickets around <laughs> you know, the rest and so the other states because it was, yeah. I mean, we, we'd at that point staffed up to, like surpassed staffing on the, the all the type two programs and but yeah it was a and that was all directly from support from from the state office to to add those positions on so and you know, we just continue that we've always had high performance aircraft and you know the expectations from the crew of what 
our firefighting looks like in Nevada, the expectations for our initial attack, how fast we get off the ground, um, what we put in our contracts with our vendors to say, hey, you guys have to camp. If we ask you to camp, you're going to camp with us. And, you know, we've had we've been super lucky, um, at least on my tenure with in Las Vegas that all of our pilots were were always mm-hmm. on board when we had uh, Papillon and when mm-hmm. we had Firehawk, everyone was was happy to camp. They most of them came from a background where they probably did some surveying where they had to camp. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it ended up that, the, you know, the pilots became, I mean, really part of the crew. I mean, when you're there every day all day fighting fire, camping out, eating, everyone's there, right? So they are 100% part of the crew. They're not leaving at the end of the night with the mechanic to go back to a hotel room. Yeah. They're the first ones up in the morning. They're flying. eating chow with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, And they like it. They get better sleep. They're not spending an hour in a car back to and then Battle eating. Mountain, then checking in, then trying to find food, right? Shitty hotel food or yep. like continental breakfast. or <laughs> and it's up, just not a lot of food opportunities in yeah. like middle of nowhere, Nevada. Yeah, so. exactly. And then you'll see, um, you, you know, when we're on a, a fire with crews that are from outside of the area, our pilots are flying an hour after they've left and they're flying an hour before they they get there and even start pre-flighting. And it, it really is, it goes back to like what Alex said. If you get things up and working, at seven o'clock in the morning, seven thirty in the morning, the conditions are right to do the best work. We can fly more people. Our performance is better. The margins are better. The safety margins are better, and you're serving the people on the ground, right? So yeah. our folks that are camping on the side of the hill from our crew have that pilot and that aircraft first thing in the morning to start supporting whatever they have going on. And that's you know that that is absolutely Nevada specific. We as an air attack flying around to a bunch of different regions, different areas. It's uh, yeah, that is something that does not occur elsewhere. Well, it's cool when you have the pilots and mechanics just like sitting there and like, maybe someone did a town run during the day. Like maybe they're not on the, the, the load. Maybe they're sitting back at camp and, you know, doing, I don't know, cargo or whatever. And they have the opportunity to go back to town and get some like food, some fresh food, you know, sitting out there barbecuing with your crew and the pilot and the mechanic, you get to learn a lot about them. And I've never experienced that anywhere else in uh, the United States with the very, this, I guess, hell attack uh, crews that I've detailed besides Nevada. And I think that's something that's very unique about the, uh, the pilots. And I guess the, uh, the folks that you attract for the vendors is they're willing to just like sleep in the dirt, eat food with you, yeah. you know, drink cowboy coffee in the morning and get back to work. And it's really cool to see that you develop a certain rapport with your pilot and that communication and that relationship with them. And I think it becomes, really good in a operational context when you're out on the line and a fire shooting and getting, and you're trying to communicate with your pilot to punch line, you know, it's, yeah. it's pretty damn cool. Well, I got to throw out a service announcement here because I've actually worked outside of Nevada because there's a couple other locations. We were mountain salt lake. I'll get after it, but I see what the culture is. There's a shift and you definitely set a tone by, you know, initial tech is our, our primary mission and we're going to fight fire, you know, like, sitting around doing nothing. And so that culture shift goes into the pilots as well. And so I think all those crews definitely take on that mantra mm-hmm. and look for those type of employees and those type of employees become management and it just sticks around. Oh yeah. yeah it's just a great opportunity. I mean, there's pilots that I haven't flown or like, haven't been on a contract with us in eight years that I still talk to every week. And it's from that, mm-hmm. like they're with us every day. Right. And they, they still check in and they're, or 
pilots that have just left in the last two years. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. We the same thing. You just talk to them every week, and it's just that opportunity it opens for honest communication, right? And that's the most important thing you can have with any part of your. I mean, it's like crew resource management number one is like being able to have open, honest communication with your pilot, right? And if something's not going right or you want to fix something, mm-hmm. if that person has spent all that time with you, it's easy. Yeah. So you're just like, hey, man, come over for a second. got to talk. Yeah, the egos are taken out of the equation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, right. And I'm not saying that other crews don't develop that if their pilots leave or, you know, everyone's different, right? It's the way contracting goes. It's the way a model goes, right? Because they're different areas where that that may or may not make sense, right? But, yeah. you know, it's just from my experience is solely in Nevada and that's it. That That's what I've seen. Right? But if you ask every helitagger, I mean, I grew up in it too, you have your favorite pilots and they're all that model, right? Like you never, your favorite pilot's never the guy that's like, hey man, I got my Marriott reports points going on. I need to get back, <laughs> you know, there's no Marriott in Battle Mountain. So no, that's right. And it, the, the seven o'clock shifts is, you know, our culture shift in aviation, but also the ICs. A lot of times, right? We the ICs out there don't, they're like, eh, aviation, they don't come on till nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. But starting to spread that word, especially in Nevada, like, hey, if you want something over your fire at 730, let me know. Yeah. Let me know that night so I can get a hold of Lucas and his pilot and say, come on at seven. They want you over the fire at 745 and let's go to work. Yeah, because maybe there's not work. Maybe Lucas gets over there and is like, yeah, man, it's everything looks good. Perfect. No harm, no foul. Lucas comes back and we're ready um, for the next one. But that's several times where, you know, bring on aircraft early and then the IC, we didn't let them know like, hey, they're on early and ready to go for you. We can have them there. So yeah, letting our ICs know like, hey, we can, we can come on earlier. And trying to change that. You bring up a good point there because traditionally, like when I was going going up through the ranks, I guess, uh, you always see like the the ground operational briefing is like 06, 07, right? And then aviation operations is that briefing is always at like nine. <laughs> it's always after the ground <laughs> operations. So there's been a shift in that culture and that, I guess, operation to <coughs> expand the capabilities and putting, you know, rotors in the sky or you know fixed wings in the sky over fires if we could fix that before we retire i'd I'd feel like it was success i mean just knowing that heavies don't fly till 10 you know and just knowing the heat of the day and how it's changing on the hill yeah to me it's just it's crazy that we're still in that same model after so long especially when you talk to the pilots in the aircraft they're like dude i'd much rather be hitting a known fire you know at first light than underneath a column at six seven o'clock chasing yeah. And most, we don't, our pilots don't complain. They want to fly early mm-hmm. in the morning when it's calm. And the, the it's, risk is when they time out, right? Yeah. They only have eight hours. Yeah. So if you start them at seven, there's a good chance they're going to be done by three. And then you have the heat of the day. So it's a balance, mm-hmm. right? You got to look at Fight the fire you have. Yeah. Get ahead of the curve too, but balancing your times. It's, yeah. it's a lot of, there's a lot of tricks and uh, interesting stuff going on with aviation management. I started as uh, doing my helicopter manager stuff with a uh, Bridgeport at one point and I'd never understood the complexities that go into that. And it's like the times, the load counts, the radio programming, you got to manage your crew and the pilots times. It's, it's pretty complicated and get, if you don't get on top of it, it can get out of control really quick. So I was told, uh, 
always told my manager trainees or if you turn a fresh manager out with one of those type three aircraft i'm like if you you just fight fire first everything else will figure itself out right just focus on that don't focus on managing the aircraft and everything that goes like the paperwork we can catch that stuff up right fight the fire fight fire Mm -hmm. you can figure everything else out yeah because that was the biggest thing you know and any anytime you specialize, I think, and it doesn't matter if it's in fire or anything else in your life, you can lose focus on some of the other things, right? So you like start rabbit holing down. Man, I'm a manager. I don't remember being a fresh manager. Like I got all this stuff. I got my manager kit. I have oh, all yeah. this, all these things I have to do, right? <laughs> twenty three book. Yeah, twenty three books, and, <laughs> and and yeah, and then sometimes you forget. You're like, oh man, I need to do this, this, and this, and then it's like, oh wait, but I mean, we're firefighters first. And then if you remember, yeah, just, it, it took a while, you know, it takes anyone when they first get stuff done a while to, to remember that. And then everything else, like I said, everything else will figure itself out. Just fight fire. There we go. So one thing I want to kind of point out about Nevada Aviation, the Helitech program is I've noticed that they, like the whole program plays very well with others, especially when they're doing upstaffing with like CWN ships, uh, all that stuff. Like you got a bunch of ships running around Nevada. It seems like you are very willing to like call militia folks to bolster the forces that we have with CWN, the CWN program around the state. I mean, I was in Oregon doing my apprenticeship uh, stuff and you give me a call. I was like, Hey man, what are you doing? I'm like piling sticks. <laughs> Cause it's, I've worked in practically a rainforest. So you called me up and uh, I've noticed that you guys pull out of staters a lot to staff up CWN ships. So, Let's explain that whole program. Yeah. So I think really it just goes back to, we, you know, you start bringing people out or you're helping out other places, you know, sending people out to the Southeast every year to help them. And then they reciprocate and send out and then they come to Nevada and, you know, the firefighting's fun, like fighting fire in the Great Basin's fun. You know, it's it different is. than fighting fire in like California or in, in big timber country because you get a fire that's like, it gets after it for a couple of days. And about the time you're like, I'm ready to go somewhere else. It's time to go somewhere else. It because that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fire's out. You get to go move on to the next fun fire. And so people enjoy that, you know, yeah. they get to come out and we push people to work on qualifications. You send people out too. Yeah. Send people out, push people to work on qualifications, uh, trade people back and forth between the other crews. I mean, I think each crew that we have in Nevada, the three exclusive use crews all have employees that have moved up and come over and laterally in who took my job lateral down from Elko as an assistant to my assistant 16. And now he runs a crew and I had my other assistant, Adam, he come down from Ely hell attack. And it's like, we send people off to different, different crews at Joe, Joe Bradshaw, one of uh, our seasonals is a perm on Ely now. And it's, yeah, people just move mm-hmm. around, but in the state, you'll see a lot of that in the state and fewer people that actually leave. You know, I was just going to say that I think that Nevada's, Aviation is huge on that, supporting the people that work here to move them up, move them around, get them out, um, you know, bring other people in. And we have like we have big time support for that. So but it's a balance, you know, now I can speak to it, too. I mean, the reason our guys like working is because there's not an imbalance of resources. Right. And so we're not bringing in outside helicopters until our guys are all working. You know, there's there's a making sure that the resources we have are doing the things that we ask them to do and then balance that with, you know, outside resources coming in and the workloads. And it's a, it's a, just another component of it. But Yeah. Nobody likes another helicopter showing up and taking your fires. 
get yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, <laughs> you can well, fly number two. Poaching. That was my IA. Yeah, my, <laughs> both my, uh, Singh and Alec have fielded many calls my, from me about <laughs> the phone, dude, what the phone lights up. The hell. <laughs> um, I think you know all three crews do have some sort of connection, whether it's with folks in the southeast um, and bringing those people over, and then us returning it, mm-hmm. and it that definitely helps in recruiting. And I know that you know with our crews is. They're firefighters and that's what they want to do. That's where their yeah. knowledge is. So being able to get them out early this time of year. Yeah. When we're burning down in Florida and South Carolina, like getting them out and doing what they want to do, making money. Yeah. Like it's huge for recruiting and they can just tell, you know, they just tell one person, maybe that person tells another and the next year we get two more applicants and maybe that's two more than we had before. So those connections that, you know, Lucas, when he was running the crew made and Eric that runs Elko and, and Walker and Ely just <clears throat> help, I think, but they're recruiting. We're still need some folks, but that helps. And then one, I think that's the federal firefighting <clears throat> agencies in a whole. It doesn't matter if you're yellow or green team. That's we all need people still. Yeah, You just right. got to look for those honey holes that haven't been plucked yet. Right. So when yeah. you show up in Elko yeah. and there's two new slow talkers, you're like, oh, yeah, some new people <laughs> from the South. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, we're Nevada BLM. One cool thing we're doing this year is we set up uh, an exchange program with Alaska. Ooh. Yeah. So we're going to send. Man at? Hey, where's uh, Jamie? Where was our Jamie at? Boozman was sitting over there. Yeah, he was. Like, so, so we're going to send people up there, um, positions and folks that Alaska needs uh, one engine. We'll probably be sending up that way. Nice. Um, they'll spend about 30 days, I believe, is where we're at. Up, 30 days driving. Up there. <laughs> And then maybe even longer, but anyway, they'll be up there. And then when season's done, Alaska's going to return it. And we'll kind of, we'll be able to say, Hey, here's the positions we need. You know, we need some dispatchers or helicopter managers, engine bosses, whatever. Mm -hmm. Heck of whatever. Yeah. And return that. So we started that this year and um, there's, there's some interest of folks that are going to do it. So another cool thing I think we're doing Nevada BLM is, we got that going this year and we'll continue it i'm sure for years to come so yeah. because that's a i mean that's huge because if you going back to recruitment like those opportunities to do something different that nevada provides i think is huge whether it's on the helitech crews uh, the tanker bases or whatever else you have going on i mean that the number one questions i mean I hired for 10 years right and so the number one questions you got from anyone who called asking for information about your crew was hey how can i develop qualifications mm-hmm. do you guys support that yeah. How many hours of overtime did the seasonals get last year? Mm. And do you have housing? Yeah. And those are and those are the three questions you always get. And so if we can provide that, and we always do fairly well, right? Between sending people out for assignments or diver- diversification of whatever they want to work on. I said I didn't care if Sadie wanted to go work on tanker-based stuff or if somebody wants to go out and work on air support, right? Yeah. We'll support it. No one's ever there for the entire season right except usually me like i was always there <laughs> Same. yeah i mean except when i started pl- really hammering on air attack but uh, you know i i would stay for the most part i liked being around the crew so but yeah just filter people out you get you look at your staffing sheet you plan it out and you're like all right i can give up three people you you and you you're gonna go do this uh yeah. two seasonals you're gonna go try out uh, boise's blackhawk and see how that works out and We'll take Boise uh, manager trainee from Boise Hell Attack because they don't fly in the front seat of the Blackhawk. Give them some experience in the front seat of the aircraft, right? And it's 
Those are the kind of things that you just did. I never thought about that before. But yeah, you can't because they require a PIC and a co-pilot. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, we had that rolling. And a crew for, chief too, right? Mm, nope, not no? on the, not, okay. on, nope, not for them on the Helitech crew. But yeah, so we had that working out for a couple of years that I was there. Just trade them off, give people different experiences, let people see different things. And it's, you know, that's what keeps people coming back because they know that they're not going to spend the entire summer with the exact same people doing the exact same thing. Yeah. It's refreshing. It keeps your, it keeps the motivation going. I think it, you don't stagnate within the crew. I mean, sometimes you see that, especially if it's like a slow year, but if you're having the ability, if, if it is a slow year, you still have the ability to pu- push people out. Right. If time and place, obviously, if it's warranted, you can still do that and have that, that ability. So, so let's talk about type threes. Like I'm a huge fan of type threes, probably because that's what I have the most experience with, with uh-huh. you and, everybody else that I've worked for in the state of Nevada. Um, why are type three lights like the go-to ship, which is cool because they're great performance, but also you're not stuck in hella base doing cargo missions to death. Well, <laughs> so that's it, man. One it? of my pros. It is the next gen aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. That In our fire fleet, it is the next gen aircraft. The B3E models, four seven HPs. Mm-hmm. I like that's it. They're the newest production aircraft. I mean, the one that we, most recently that I worked on, I mean, that helicopter was manufactured in like 2016. Yeah. Right. You rolled onto our contract with 35 hours on it. That's it. Yeah. 35. 35. 35. Yeah. Yeah. Not 3,500 hours. Some of these antiquated Mm -hmm. airframes, you know, from Vietnam. You know, with the modifications to both the 407, whether it's the the HP or the E model with BLR kits, like the performance you get out of those, it, it really, I mean, it changes what, you should think about whether you're talking about light aircraft in Nevada, it's perfect. You can set them down in small, small places or now with step programs are perfect with sliders, being able to get out the hover entry, hover exit stuff. I mean, it's just, they're, they're built to perform in the environment that we work in. Right. So mm-hmm. they're utility aircraft. They're awesome. Um, and that's it. It's really like you're, you have fresh new aircraft. They're supported by manufacturers that are still manufacturing those aircraft. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to get like off the shelf, like go to Craig and auto parts for <laughs> some 1960s airframe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And you know, everything has their place, but I think last, so uh, last summer I was there attacking a fire out of Stanley, Idaho and the air ops for the day gave me a call and said, Hey, we got type one. Here's our complement of aircraft. Right. But this, uh, so bell 214, which is classified as a type one aircraft. They're like, they're sitting here, but they're with how hot it is today. In the they get off the tarmac. They're like, their allowables are, you're pulling more water with the A star and the four seven yeah. we have here than they can pull. And so it's like the, the things that we want to let people know, it's like, it's not automatic. You're like, Hey, I want type one or type two for bucket work. And I mean, anymore, uh, we, when I left, before I left the crew, we, we rolled with a 210 gallon Bambi max bucket. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 40 gallons less than what you're getting out of a, you know, what's like a 240 bucket on a type two. Yeah. I want to say so. And are you going to be able to tell the difference between 30 gallons? No, no. no. Mm-hmm. Good luck on water too. <clears throat> yeah. The yeah. type three bucket can fit in all our dip sites. So I've- I've seen some dip sites that were real questionable, like scummy cow ponds. Of course, we had permission to use them and everything like that, but it's just like a hole. It's, it's like imagine yeah. putting something into a five-gallon bucket and you're still pulling water out of this thing. So definitely see the utility with an A-star or the 407, like you're saying. Um, 
yeah, they're, they're freaking great. They're agile and they're light. They have a lot of altitude and a lot of heat, uh, that they can tolerate. Yeah. It's they're freaking awesome. And you're not just thinking cargo all freaking days. And managing a crew. I mean, there's a whole component of the size of the crew, the footprint of the vehicles, you know, what is, what is our mission? That's Mm -hmm. the first question, right? Our mission is initial attack fast and hard. And so we're going to go with the model that fits that the best, best helicopter, a good size crew, you know, limited footprint with vehicles to get on scene as fast as possible. Um, nothing against the type ones and type twos. It's just not, it's not the mission here. You know, those get sucked up in the large scale, long duration fires, yeah, extended attacks. And then that takes away from our initial attack primary mission. Right. Yeah. That's another thing too, is, uh, a lot of people are <laughs> touting the whole repeller thing, which I definitely see the utility for repellers, especially in big timber. You can get into small pockets. There's, they serve their purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. But here we don't have a lot of big timber, not a lot of it. We do have it in certain areas, but not a lot of it. That's where the type three kind of comes in. So as far as like shuttling people or getting into tight spots, you could still have that abil- that availability with the type three ships, especially with the step program. So let's expand on the step program and the, like, the utility behind that, because from my understanding, only region four does step or am I taking that wrong? Is it only Nevada or? So it's really, yeah, well, it's only the BLM, right? So yeah. if we refer to regions, like the Forest Service doesn't do it at all. So right? zero. Zero. Park they got the repellent. Park Service does it, right? So, Short haul too, right? True, yes. The yeah. Park Service does it as well. But so this was all the the brainchild of Patrick Kenny, really, from Salt Lake. He mm-hmm. put this, yeah, he put this. I love that dude. Yeah. I remember when he came to my desk in the office, he's like, hey, I got an idea. What if we <laughs> did he have his guitar? No, he had a shaker. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. There you go. He's like, what if we try this, uh, just hover hover exits? You know, because we were looking at rads and stuff, like fast roping mm-hmm. over at the SF base in like uh, South, South Salt Lake. And he's like, this is a lot of extra work and training and equipment. We could just step out, you know, and like the cadastral guys do it in Alaska all the time. So we went down that rabbit trail and like uh, when you hear the sales pitch, you're like, especially compared to like, repelling right with the the recurrency training and all the towers and everything that you have that goes into that you can practice step when you come home from a mission on a curb right like it's just do it out on a part yeah it's just super easy and no rotors turning low cost and in this country and environment and terrain and vegetation it absolutely makes sense i mean it's pretty cool yeah i mean if you've seen i mean really so he did all this work right and then he and i started talking to to, I wanted to add it as well. Mm-hmm. And then us adding it just became Nevada adding it. And so, well, two crews ended up doing it by Las Vegas and Elko. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was his brainchild. We, so all the plans were already put together. Everything was ready to go basically off the shelf when we, when we got involved and turned it into or started as emergency extraction only and yeah. expanded into when we started it, they gave us, permission it was the same year that uh, pk got permission to go operationally as well and so when we came in we uh we had some discussions with the national office that they wanted they're like well maybe we start emergency only uh in your first year and i was like well that doesn't make any sense why would we go in to do something that's going to be a rare event when it's something that we could use operationally operationally now yeah and so they gave us permission to to go direct into operational as well and I mean, if you've walked around the Great Basin, you've seen some of the like old growth sagebrush. I mean, yeah. those are the places that we land. And you, if you've walked around an A-star, 
you know that tail rotor is like hip level to me. Yeah. I'm like five eight on a good day, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it just takes away all of that, like leaning out the door, looking like, back at your tail rotor. Hey, man, is it clear? Just to tuck it between two sagebrush. When instead we can just stay this high, get out, and people are on the line getting yeah. to work. And it's uh, and then on top of that, the extraction possibilities where you can pull somebody off the side of the hill without landing at all and, and elko elko's done that i've seen i was on that fire where they did it. i'm not going to name the fire i don't want to give out too much information but it was out there in eastern nevada and i believe you were on the fire as well or you were incoming maybe your crew mm, maybe. not sure if they were i wasn't with them i was with bridgeport and elko was next to us and i was like timing out on my role and then mm-hmm. i'm hearing radio traffic for emergency medical so Elko got the the mission and they, from my understanding, it sounded like they did a step extraction for the mm-hmm. the person. So, and it was a success. I mean, that right there is invaluable for rapid extraction yeah. of patients. Exactly. And expanded uh, from us, I think, in Elko and Salt Lake to Moab and Moki and St. George mm-hmm. also do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that's it's super helpful. Uh, team fires is one thing that from the inception of this program that we wanted to avoid was being like short hauled yeah. towards like, Hey, we're keeping you on this uh, campaign yeah. fire because you can do this. And it's like, no, this is a tool, but we are an initial attack resource. Yeah. I don't want to sit here for however long well, on the, on the chance that this will happen because it's such a, it's such a quick, yeah, it's such a quick, um, process to to be able to make that change over to set up the aircraft to do an extraction that it's like we don't need to we'll hit the perfect topography and, and fuel type for it too and if you think that you need those type of tools i mean there's better ones than step right so yeah. it's that there's hoist order hoist aircraft we'll order give up, an actual short hauler. we'll give up the qual if that's what you're gonna <laughs> that say. was it then that was absolutely to, to my fmo at the time when i was still supervising the crew was like if this starts happening I'll, I'm going to stop the program. Just going to wash my we hands We won't of do it. it anymore because that's not what any of us want to do. Yeah. Everyone well, will. And that's the thing too with short haul. I mean, it serves its purpose, especially in like big timber, mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest, you know, steep, shitty canyons where you can't get an A-star in and, you know, it take more time to walk down the hill. Um, but the reconfigure on a short haul mission is pretty substantial timeline. I want to say, I want to say what it takes, probably a half hour for everything because you have to go insert you have to reconfigure the ship insert the crew reconfigure again and then do your extraction right that's kind of the the rough overview of what goes on with step i mean you drop one person off to brief some people one or two people to brief some people and the the configuration of the aircraft is like all right we're gonna fold up the seats real quick and that's it and you slide up a stretcher in the back and get good to go in and they're off the line. Yeah. Super no. quick. It was also a way to like, you know, make sure we were taking care of our own. You know, there's there's a lot of instances, if you've been around Helitech long enough, is power on landing, right? You're in a rock pile, log deck, and your pilot's keeping power on. That's by definition in the hover exit. No, oh, yeah, so, you're at full performance. Right and there. so our guys are doing it for safety, and the pilot knows that that's the best thing to do. And so how do we, from you know, give them them the the right tools to, to do that safely yeah back it up with policy because yeah absolutely there's every helicopter manager on a light has been in that spot mm-hmm. where it's like you set down you both skids down and you look at your pilot and he's like i'm not going i'm not going to idle and you're like okay 
yeah, you're, yeah, settling in. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's gnarly. I mean, I've only probably seen that look once or twice from a pilot, and nothing said. <laughs> it's just kind of an agreement, but we don't talk about that part. But as far as like the uh, medical uh, program as a whole, I think that Nevada is pretty uh, boundary pushing as far as like the expanded scope of practice, all that other stuff. And in combination with aviation assets that we have and the hotshot crews having, you know, X amount of EMTs. And then now the engine program, like I think every engine has a EMT or a majority of the engines have an EMT out there. And like I know the crews have to have them now if I'm understanding that policy right. I don't know if everyone does. All of our vehicles <clears throat> have that EMT bag. Yeah, it's a standardized kit. That so standardized everybody kit. knows what's so in it. If you were on the Helitech crew and you're EMT, we could fly to any mm -hmm. Nevada BLM resource, grab a bag that is in there. So that is standard. Um, a lot of our crews, Helitech crews do have EMTs. Our hotshot crews or Vegas Valley, I'm sure does. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about each engine, but... I know Carson City has a, a shit ton of EMTs and they're really pushing out that EMT and even EMT advance, which we, it, the basics here in Nevada can almost operate as an EMT advanced just with their protocols and their medical direction. But if they're in advance, it's even more, it's, it's, it's even better. I mean, you can't really use a lot of the stuff that it, they have access to for medical protocol, mm -hmm. but it's just another tool in the toolbox. I mean, where it's come from for my first year in fire in Ely mm -hmm. uh, 20 years ago to where it is now. It's I was like, there, man. It's like Caliente. <laughs> My first year, yeah, Ely, Nevada. And yeah, it's it's just light years from what, what we had then. Oh, yeah. So as far as the medical stuff um, goes, let's transition into other stuff, like when bad stuff happens. We talked about mental health and how we've been expanding the aviation program in the state of Nevada with both um, the air attack platforms, the hell attack platforms, the tanker base uh, side of things. We've always had this like hot topic of mental health. And now when is it going to become like a common thing? Or I, I, I guess, I, let me for your fairness. I, I think that it's becoming less of a buzzword and a catchphrase and it's actually becoming into like a normalized thing for us so let's expand on the topic of mental health what are some other things that we're doing out there well, i think you saw it yesterday in the breakout so i sat in the crews and helitech had a breakout and then there the uams and dispatch so i went into both but to hear the crews talk mm -hmm. you know when we talked about mental health really gave me some warm and fuzzies you know the the dialogues going on you know the ideas that we've discussed you know we talked about good bad whatever um, but to hear them from their mouths and like talking about situations and things that they do, uh, like JP's got thing, he'll ask questions in the morning and say, you know, we come back at night. Uh, so they're, they're always, they're dissecting it. And like, they understand mm -hmm. that they're getting better. They're treating their people better and they understand that they'll have them longer and help foster them and, and, and get them up to, to being good leaders themselves. So I'm pretty stoked on it. And I think it's been one of the more rewarding aspects of, of my career is the whole mental health transition and the culture shift that is not a buzzword anymore it's not just like no no it's it's the yeah. norm it's the norm i think there's a big shift in it too as far as like just having the conversation i think people are more vocal and that's a change that i've seen in the very short amount of time i mean the cumulative experience in this room has got to be pushing 125 years of fire right with all of us put together 
with the time that we've all been in the fire service though, I think that we're very fortunate to, this is just my perspective, that we're very fortunate to see like the old school and that transition, that transition phase and into the new school of operations and for better or for worse, I think it's getting better. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a time and place for like the old school, shut the fuck up and dig kind of mentality. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. That's absolutely the truth though. Like there's this job still fucking hard, right? Like, it is. You're not going to make it easier by being soft on, you know, your days off with your wife and your kids. Like when you get back here, it's still going to be a hard job. It's still going to mm-hmm. suck at times. Yeah. And but, we're all eating the ter- same turd sandwich. Yeah. Though. Yeah. So like, bottling up all your shit and not processing it is not going to make you better in 20 years. So no, it makes if you hazardous. You're not going to be a great employee. Then like how, where does the leadership all come back into if we're not figuring out how to like take care of that and manage that better? Yeah. Well, it's like trying to fill a, a already full cup full of more water. I mean, it, you don't have any room. It's, it's just going to overflow. overflow. Right. And it, seeing like the rates of divorce, the alcoholism, the binge drinking, all of the explosive personality traits as a culture that we have. I mean, I, I want to say potentially explosive, right? Some people manage it better than others. Mm-hmm. Other people are very self-destructive. And I think that uh, it's that burden, that mental health burden is actually taking a turn for the better. So I don't know. What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? What have you personally seen over the course of your careers? Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> you guys the there's a lot of stories. <laughs> there's a lot of stories from when I first started. Probably we all do, but it's changed, uh, you know, 360 degrees from when I started in 2099. Um, and you know, we go around preseason, postseason with clinicians and, you know, management staff, and we have breakouts, whether that's with dispatch or the whole engine program or hell attack crew, hot shot crews, whatever. We're, we're taking that time. It's always uncomfortable at first. Um, and Jeremy was on a couple of the first times we did it. Mm-hmm. And I participated a lot last year driving around. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, the conversations are great. And then when we come to something like this, and then they're all, folks are already talking about it themselves. Like, you know, it's. Like I've gone out on SISM roles afterwards. Cause I, I I swore I was never going to do SISM again. I just didn't want to bear everybody else's like drama. Right. Well, it's hard, man. That's not what I do. It's like never trust a therapist without a therapist. therapist, Right. right? And you spend a lot of time with them and then you start to like connect with ones. And so like there was a SISM in uh, Bonneville and Silver State were all out in the field. We spent so much time with them, like doing our, our, our tours. They like that system went like smooth. We were out in the field with them on the line. Like it just, it worked. Right. And so like you start to drink the Kool-Aid that way. You're like, oh man, repetition. It's just like everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you, I mean, it's like any other culture too. Like if a vet, the old guys are coming up and saying like, Hey man, watch out for this. I'm on my third marriage. You know, my kids don't mm-hmm. talk to me. I'm not in any pictures in the hallway. Do it different. I don't know what the hell that is, but just do it different. Right. And that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Everybody, it's good to see that the crews talk about it. You know, go to Melissa's seat base. Um, you know, there we do the red, yellow, green, and we might not all use that, but they're talking about things and doing their own thing. And so I, I've seen that change. Kind of um, like the mental health gar. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's like the crews were talking about it yesterday. You know, like everybody thought it was a joke. I thought it was so dumb when I heard it. You know, I'm like, oh, I've sweetened another checklist. Right. Yeah. And then we started using it in our team, in our office. And it's a great, like, even if it is a joke, dude, I'm red, you know, like how are you going to get back to that green? You know, and your boss is like, dude, take a couple of days off. 
Okay. Now so that's a big thing right there. The time yeah. off, man. Yeah. Right. Well, we had the ability to do it, right? Because we've managed and changed the programs mm-hmm. to accommodate that though. But time off thing, man, it's, especially when you're getting into the point where you're having kids, you're got a wife, all that stuff, you know, the two and a half kids, you know, white picket fence kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's really important to find that work-life balance. And I think that we're actually realizing it finally. So well, I think it all boils down from leadership and them supporting it and going down to the crews and the tanker bases and wherever, you know, wherever they go down to and kind of see that it's okay. Like we can open up, we can talk about this, we can see what's going on. And like you said, how to get from red to green and figure it out. And mm-hmm. I think that's huge. I just think uh, talking about it and being receptive and willing to be vulnerable. That's the big thing. Cause mm-hmm. like yeah. you said, it, you have to be, a pretty hard ass person to do this job at times. And like the job doesn't stop. And most of the time you go to the therapist when you're like in the red, right? Yeah. It's already so too like late. The yeah. best therapists are your homies, right? Your buddies, yeah, people you work with. Stuff. Like that, that's the whole goal is like, man, you need to talk to get that shit off and like, you know, work through that with somebody. And especially if your supervisor can listen and ask the right question about what you need to get back to something. That's what really what we're promoting with the leadership of it. Oh yeah. And then it's compounded all these like things that happen on the line, the stress of being away from uh, your family, the the financial thing. There's another one that's going to be talked about. Yeah. You can throw money at a problem. It's going to not solve everything, but it sure is hell going to help because I've literally been homeless working this job. So just couch surfing or paratrooping into my buddy's house, you know, <laughs> so, and it sucks. It sucks that you can't afford, uh, to, you know, you have to choose between, oh, do I get my knee looked at or do I put food on yeah. in my stomach? You know, my and buddy and I lived in thing. a storage unit, Birdie. Birdie and I lived in a storage <laughs> unit for two summers. Yeah. Like it's just, you get by, right? But you, you didn't know any different and you didn't know how to like say anything. So you just, just grin and bear it. Just grin and bear it, right? And like, then you start to see suicides 20 years later in the same age group and you're like, oh man, I need to reassess my my mm-hmm. life here. Yeah, but there's something so, I was talking about this with Grant the other day or yesterday and, uh, there's something kind of enchanting and like attractive about that dirt bag lifestyle. This, especially if it's a young man and woman sport, that, that lifestyle is very attractive to where you're pretty much nomadic, right? Just a firefighting dirt bag. But once you hit that GS six, seven level, when people start settling down and wanting to have kids and all that stuff, it, it becomes real eye opening, real goddamn quick as far as, well, dirt bagging in the summer with your buddies and then dirt bagging in the winter by yourself and like two different dirt bag versions, right? Yes. <laughs> One's a lot cleaner than the other. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be some changes on the horizon. I hope that it's implemented well and it alleviates some of that financial stress because that's going to be a, a point of burden that a lot of people are constantly thinking of. I mean, shit, if I could have health insurance year round as a temporary seasonal, that would be like the dream job. Mm-hmm. That'd be huge. But if you could take one less assignment, right? Two weeks more yeah. at home. Like there's just, there's all those little frequencies and, and really promoting how you do it, but you can't do it unless you're stable some, you know, way. Mm-hmm. So the pay increases, the the benefits, it all, it's all there. I mean, it's, there's so many different components to all these issues, oh, yeah. whether it's staffing and complexities at air braces, the hell attack, the air attack, the pay, and it all feeds back to mental health and leadership. And No, it's like, it's cyclic, right? So, I mean, all these things play into each other. It's like the infinity Venn diagram of things that we need to do to survive yet shit that we're bitching about yet stuff that makes us happy. So, yeah, <laughs> but it just goes on forever. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, things are changing on the horizon. I think that, uh, you know, I, I will say that Nevada, my time working with the Nevada BLM in whatever capacity, whether it's aviation or a cruise or engines or whatever, it's been interesting to see the evolution of that because I want to say, and I hate using this word progressive because a lot of people have like the red versus blue in their own connotation mm-hmm. of that word, that own definition, definition of that word. But as far as like in its truest sense, I want to say that the Nevada BLM is been pretty eye-opening as far as like pushing the boundaries of what we could do to take care of our folks so definitely appreciate that about my time i don't know what you guys thoughts on that i think nevada is like i mean i've really worked in six states and nevada definitely has a culture that's different with hey i got an idea and all right let's assess it let's check it out let's truth it you know and nothing is off the table until you know absolutely no way i mean i've only heard no one time and that was just tinning the windows in my coverage. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, we would all agree that's, you know, Paul Peterson's been our FMO for a long time. And mm-hmm. those, I mean, he's been a, a big leader. And like Jeremy says, when any of us go to him with an idea, we rarely get no. It's yeah. like, yeah, he's like, let's do it. I think, you know. It, it seems like Nevada BLM is more of a beg for forgiveness than ask for permission kind of state. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to say that, but <laughs> I'll say the quiet part out loud, <laughs> which it can be a good thing. Uh, it is a good thing in our case because we're doing it for, you know, just purposes. And good and I reasons. think that's, that's a good point though. I mean, there, Paul, Paul knows, Brock knows, Karen before Brock, mm-hmm. Dennis Strange, like there's good leadership here. And so they're not going out on a limb to like hanging it out for something that's absolutely crazy. You know, they're going to ask you the right questions if you're the subject matter expert. And you're going to have to convince them. And so that you are progressive and you are kind of asking for forgiveness in some ways. But it's really not like you're going, you know, to do something destructive or irresponsible. It's just for the firefighter out there in the field. Yeah. I think what's uh, different or lucky for us in Nevada is you have a lot of people that are from Nevada and that have grown up through the program. Mm-hmm. And if you look in the just this meeting it's all people that we've worked with for almost our entire career across Mm -hmm. the state. And then as people get hired and moved up, you know, it's the leadership, like you said, the leadership that's in the state that everyone trusts each other and that they're, they trust the hires that people make for the most part. And so whether it's not like, like you said, it's not really forgiveness or permission. It's like they respect what we do as an organization. Right. So whether it's a hell attack crew in El Coeli or, Vegas or the hotshot crews or anybody else. It's like, well, if he's making this decision, it's because it, there's a reason behind it. So we'll support it. And that we know, I knew that I didn't have to call for everything that I wanted yeah. to do. I had the latitude to be able to make decisions for myself. Right. Yeah. Some operational yeah, independence. Yeah. Like yeah. never yeah. felt like I was under anybody's thumb. And that was, uh, I mean, that was huge. That's what, that's what keeps people around. You pass that down through your whole crew. It's like, I'm not, I've never been micromanaged here. And that was, that's ideal. It seems like there's a good level of trust as well between all of the different districts and all of the leadership and the boot and even your like subordinates, if you will, or your boots on the ground, your peers, whatever coworkers, whatever you want to call them. But there's not like a culture of uh, buddy fucking. That's what I've kind of noticed. There's not a lot of them out there. Yeah. So. I mean, even when you make a mistake, because we all do it, like yeah. I've made, <laughs> I've, you know, I've made mistakes yeah. for sure at work well, and yeah. like, oh, wait, our contract ended yesterday, but I'm still <laughs> flying the aircraft today and Shit. there's some ramifications here. It was like, I wasn't scared to call Singh and tell him that. It was yeah. like, you're like, hey, man. It's a fucking team. Right? Oops. You're like, you whoops. Know, yeah. We're all on the same team. And like, I think if somebody does, you know, happen to go blue falcon on them, mm-hmm. you call it out. Right. And you're like, hey, dude, you just screwed. 
three of your buddies by poaching that assignment. You know, like you don't let anything slide. Yeah. Holding people accountable and calling them out when they need to. It kind of reduces that buddy fucking culture, I guess you can say. So, or the blue falcon culture. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's good, man. It's, it's a very productive and uh, very healthy environment to work in. And uh, my, overall, my overall experience of working with the Nevada BLM has been pretty positive, which leads me into my next topic of hiring. So as far as getting your foot in the door for the program, like what are you guys looking for? I know aviation like Hell Attack, you typically need some fire experience. And that's obviously with you need to experience. So you can't just hop in a plane and be in air attack. One season. Things. Yeah. One season. That's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about hiring and how, uh, what you guys are looking for, the qualities of people that you're looking for. Um, just take it away. So really for, uh, for, for me, what I was doing hiring, right. was just, uh, I wanted the, the year of experience. I mean, it, we, we have mechanisms to get around that for the right candidate. Right. We've done it before mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, we had a, like an army ranger, guy who came in like super good dude his references were impeccable and so it's an easy call like, yeah we're gonna pick him up with no fire because he's been climbing out of the package chinooks in afghanistan for the last five years yeah. right so probably knows his way around he knows his way around a helicopter right we'll teach him some fire but we don't need to teach him how to work around a helicopter <laughs> plus his run times were phenomenal so it was like and then oh, yeah. Vegas they're, like this, running they're like this dude is the fittest dude i've ever met i'm like I'm sold. All right. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's just open communication. You, 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 we want to find the right people for the job, especially in, in Las Vegas or really, I mean, any helitech crew, you're going to be on the road a lot. Oh, yeah. So that's like out, out of the gate when people call and they have interest. It's like, okay, here's the expectation is you're going to have time where if you, if you want to go do something, we can give you some time off in the summer. Knowing that staffing the aircraft comes first because that's our job but what we have some flexibility we can do those things yeah. but also just expect that you're going to be on the road for 100 to 120 days this summer that's and a that's lot. it i mean it's yeah. a lot i mean that and and it's just the reality of how the crew works it's the reality of you know where it's situated in the state and the same i mean Elko's the same Ely's the same they're all on the road for significant periods and so i mean it's things that you're just honest with up front so that no one's surprised that's the biggest thing with hiring is, you know, reference checks and all that stuff are good and they help move through that process and what your background is. And, uh, and, and like you said, we talk about fitness a lot, especially, mm-hmm. you know, we're on the side of the hill, like everybody else mm-hmm. and you have to be fit. There's no choice. There's, yeah. there's no way around it. Um, you're not like sitting there doing cargo missions all day. You're not, yeah. yeah, exactly. And just set the expectations that there's like, this is what we do you, in their first week, your first day, we are going to go run 10 miles. Yeah. You're going to get your ass kicked. So you are warned now as an employee, right? So the, those type of things, it's just open communication. So no one is surprised because that is, that is a recipe for disaster on a crew. When you hire somebody who wasn't expecting to do what you do, and then it's just a problem, right? Yeah. Just that upfront, First thing, interviews, like, this is how this runs. Yeah, this is what your expectations are as far as fitness goes. I see that you've been on another crew. Uh, this this is different, or it might be the same. Maybe you were on the road as much as you were, but or whatever. But yeah. this is how this works. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to meld to the program. Yeah. program's not going to meld to you. So. <laughs> well, the BLM Fitness Challenge is definitely a real thing. So it's statewide. I got a plaque in my less. office that has all Nevada for 10 years. So yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's less of a MVP. 
that's less of a thing now. Twin is fall. it less of a thing now? Is it? Oh, but we have to do planks <laughs> instead of sit up. Wait, what? Yeah, it changed last year. You're not that's, fucking with me, are you? No, it's are like you fucking sit-ups with me are gone. Like, and now you do planks. You, it's a lot easier to max out five minutes of planks than it is to max out 130 setups. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. Are you seriously fucking with me? Yeah, no, go look it up. They changed it. Oh my God. Still fizz. You still run though. And okay. you have to do pull-ups and push-ups, push-ups, push ups, right? Yeah. But planks? Really? Yeah. Really? I don't you, I don't like planks. So my are you a good plank guy? No. <laughs> do sit-ups. <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, you'll hear, uh, I've had people on the crew before that were, <laughs> they were like, this has no representation for firefighting, right? Like, it, what, yeah. it, and it doesn't, but it was well, it's like the pack test. Like, the the yeah, pack test is, it's in my opinion, since I'm no longer answering to Uncle Sam, I can say that the pack test is bullshit as far as like a representation of what we need to do to be physically fit. Yeah. So it's like, it, it's more of a camaraderie thing, right? The Beal and Fire Fitness yeah. is a, it's it's fun. a bit part of the state exactly compete against other crews it's uh i mean it's something fun to do but yeah, yeah. it's uh i mean if you get that coveted 400 score then no one can take that away from you until the next year right so yeah yeah so yeah i mean it's just different things so that i mean for hiring for me that's that's what it's about just so open and honest and set expectations before they even set foot in the door mm-hmm. now what about the tanker base side of things um for the tanker base, I try to really focus locally mm-hmm. just because we do have to drive every day from Elko. So the majority of us live there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a drive every day, but we do it. <laughs> um, it hasn't been too hard for me. I do a lot of networking myself. I'm going to go out and try to find people that have a good attitude, positive, are going to work. They want to work. Um, you know, we don't do 120 days on the road, but we're constantly on the road. They want to go out on assignments. Um, I don't need somebody with a bad attitude in there. so. That's a big thing for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all live together practically all summer, so we need everybody. It's very much a fire family. Yeah, on the same page. Um, I like somebody that wants to strive, obviously, that's going to want to be better, wants to learn. If you want to go on an assignment every year, a couple assignments, I don't care. We're going to make it work. We'll make it, you know. Get a detailer in the backfield. Yeah, exactly. Or we try to, you know, bring in local people. But ever, I would say in the last four or five years, we have more and more and more on our list. I mean, at the tanker base, you don't have to have fireline experience. So you can have the six months general work experience so we can get a bigger list. Um, yeah, it's, it's working. But at I mean, some point to get to Melissa's level, we yes. do got to get them that 90 days. Got to get that fireline yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm we sure. work locally and get them on an engine or whatever they can do to get to help. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And now as far as the outside detailers on the, uh, I guess the uh, air attack kind of say kind of thing or like people that are outside applicants looking to get into the Nevada aviation program for air attack or that other aviation side of things. What are we looking for there? I mean, I think just the complexity. Um, we hired Justin Cutler as the stead air attack behind Scott Moore when he retired. And, you know, just looking at all those positions, Salt Lake air attack, stead, Elko, um, you have some pretty complex airspace and then the dynamics of how much we're willing to commit to an incident is also a lot for some folks. And so when you're working through those processes, it's just, you know, looking for the folks that want to improve all the time, have a path, have a positive attitude, you know, and understand that the complexity is there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't going to be a cakewalk and, you know, have a good attitude with it. So I think those are like just the easy ones. Um, 
you're really training up the next generation, right? Yeah. So that's the leaders you're mm-hmm. looking for. That's why Lucas has a job. Justin. I think that's every firefighter's job is to, you know, build upon the foundation that was laid before you by the, by your predecessors and give that to the, your predecessors, right? Kind of build them up. But aviation had up. a lot of campers, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. Dudes that just never moved. Like tanker-based managers, mm-hmm. not talking about you, Kidwell, that were there forever. Just like there was nothing. And it just, you know, kind of log jammed it. Yeah. And so you just find folks that have some energy and, and uh, are looking. There's so much training with the air attacks, the NASTAs, the NAF, all three NAFAs. You know, you're training up new air attacks. There's a lot of commitment to that. And I don't want somebody that doesn't want to do that help with that workload because then it all falls to like the same three dudes, you know. And so looking for those opportunities, I think Nevada's found that balance. Fast, gr- aggressive, initial attack. That's what we do. Like the Helltack crews now, like if it's busy in Nevada, we need them. They're staying here. They're our bread and butter. Same with their attacks. Like we're not sending you to go to a team fire. Like we need you here for IA. Mm-hmm. We order, you know, order early, order often. Like that motto and people that like that's the same with Melissa. Like she knows like they're, you know, all of our bases know we're trying to get seats out the door and trying to get heavies out the door and support Lucas who's supporting the people on the ground. So like. And that's BLM's model, right? Initial initial attack. And I think we do really well with that in Nevada. And um, our folks know if it's slow, then yeah, we'll go help people out. But man, if Nevada's busy. Buckle up. Yeah. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And from 10 years of a uh, hell attack here on the state, I would much rather be busy in Nevada fighting fire Same. than yeah. out somewhere else on a, uh, on a hell of a assignment. So that's what you look for. You want you want that character type that isn't looking at the overtime necessarily as a primary function. So like no me- any means necessary to get to this number. Mm-hmm. It's like I just want to go fight fire, initial attack, change things all constantly. You look for that. Learn some you're going to get some some folks that mm-hmm. have some uh, really strong character for Nevada. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And now, last question I have for you guys is the topic that everybody in aviation either loves or hates there's really no in between but let's talk about uas for a quick minute i know you guys got to go here all right i'm out here but see there we go (laughs) see that's a cut (laughs) so uas i know there's a big push uh government wide doesn't matter if you're team green or team yellow Mm -hmm. or whatever flavor of department you belong to right so uas is one of those hot button tickets or hot button items right let's talk about uas I think it's like anything else. Like there's a right time to use that tool mm-hmm. for whatever you want. Then the the progress that that program's making is big, right? But uh, yeah, I think just just picking and choosing what what it makes the most sense for when these things happen, the the training that goes into it, integrating into. I mean, because our manned aircraft, right? Our pilots. The fly helicopters, seats, tankers, they're very interested in how the program's going and how it integrates with what they do because it's never this everyone flying at the same level, right? Yeah. And so they want to make sure that the training is be, being done. They're getting the same information that the tanker pilots are getting, that everyone's operating on the same wavelength. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that f- for my two cents, um, UAS wise is like, just as long as we're not rushing integration, right? And making sure that everyone's comfortable and playing together nicely in, in our 
in our sandbox. And uh, yeah, absolutely, there's application. I think the the big question for UAS, and I just learned this last year, I think when Matt Dutton got the national <laughs> UAS, is like, what's our mission, right? And so we really look at Nevada because that's that was the focus here. What's the mission? Initial attack, like trying to get any kind of UAS systems in place in 48 hours. His initial attack is pretty mm-hmm. rare. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, we brought a type one in and put it like on a, a, a GAC repo order and then mm-hmm. just started moving it around to the, to the incidents. But Nevada just doesn't have any, it doesn't do aerial ignition like the other states. And so, yeah, it's not like we're doing a, a bunch of broadcast right. burning. Yeah, so, there's, I mean. there's like resource stuff with, you know, less complex airspace that I could see it integrating. But right now it's just Nevada's kind of actually been the one thing that I've seen where they were like, oh, let's pump the brakes on this when I came in was UAS, so. Mm. Yeah, ton of, not ton, but there's non-fire missions and we have some of that in Nevada. And I can see the future going forward that, you know, we got some some missions for the abandoned mines. You know, we got to go inventory of those. It's awesome tool for that. Um, we got some projects in Ely that they want to do. Um, so yeah, I think definitely in Nevada, we have some non-fire stuff that we will utilize UAS for going forward for sure. And you look at like the other programs, the air attacks, hell attack, you know, seats is we used to do all these collateral duties, right? Like 20 yeah. years ago, hell attack foremen were probably doing something else and they started doing this. And so now the, the, the programs are legitimate, right? The professionals that have worked their way up. UAS is no different. Like trying to carry that as a UAM when it's changing every day, you it's have just zero new. passion for it. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it's kind of an unrealistic expectation. So we need to build the program with positions so that those folks can own that and build that to whatever the need is. Yeah. I can definitely see the utility in some UAS uh, tools, like, especially with like IR flights. Right. I know there was, uh, I was on a fire in outside of Fallon one, one year and uh, the drone crew showed up and they're doing IR and overwatch with essentially a gigantic, like Mm -hmm. decommissioned, uh, what are those those things at VTOL? Because that was the one yeah. that came off the fire in Elko and then went to the one by Fallon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was on one of those fire, that fire actually. And uh, they were getting some pretty cool missions out of it. But also I know it's kind of cumbersome. It hasn't been really figured out yet. Well, and you're in, you're in that airspace too. You're in yeah. Fallon's airspace. Yeah. And like, there's all these things. And so there's a time and a place on. for everything. And then there's the management of it. I mean, I have to do team stuff occasionally and like, getting the UAS people in line with the ops people and timing everything perfectly to getting it pulled off. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of coordination in that. And so initial attack is just so dynamic. And when your fires are four days is a long fire, especially out here. Yeah. Like, Rips and you know, quits, right. Yeah. It, it just, we just haven't found the one. And we're like, Oh, that's, that's what we need right there. We were on that. We were on that fire in Fallon. Yeah. That you're talking about. Yeah. He was up, uh, I think the drone was up flying. Our pilot uh, had gone up to do some bucket work. And so he calls going, you know, coming off the dip, going into the airspace and the, the drone operator, drone operator. <laughs> not to be confused. With not to be confused pilot. with the pilot. <laughs> the drone operator gave him an altimeter setting and our pilot, when he came back and landed, he's like, it took everything I had not to go. Got it, nerd. <laughs> and I was like, Cody. <laughs> thank you for not doing that. yeah <laughs> just double click them yeah mm-hmm. but yeah like just like you said i think it, and really it sort of runs into blm wide i think there's a, a lot of application in the resource side but i mean if you just chase the numbers and you see where these drones are being successful it's on large scale yeah 
the Mosquito Fire, for example, last year, we had drones flying on that every day. I was mm-hmm. over there helicoing and every day they were flying and they were doing good work. They were giving great information to the team. The team was happy. Everything was good. Right. But that's, uh, I mean, you're talking about a fire that I was on for like 18 days. Right? Yeah. And it'd be going before fire. I got there. Yeah. Right. And so that's a great application when the BLM wide, when our mission is primarily initial attack, I don't, you know, there's also no budget increase for like, so the aviation budget has been flat for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so nothing has gotten cheaper in the last 10 years, especially aircraft. Oh, yeah. And then we're going to add a whole nother program to it of unmanned aircraft that are actually quadrupling in price currently. You know, they're not even figured out yet. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, there's a lot of R and D, and it's like, man, I I think the best investment, at least in Nevada, you know, is let's focus on our man stuff and get that house right. And then when that corner turns for UAS, and there is a budget increase, or there's a legitimate influx of something, if that's really our focus, then we'll we'll we'll, you know consider it then. But it's just hard when you're trying to take positions because there's only so much money out there, right? Yeah. So you take this one from here to fill this one over here. You know, and it's it's something that is giving somebody some time off, like our air attacks that are just burned out. It's a hard it's a hard sale, you know. I don't think you're ever going to take the human element out of firefighting, even with like the implementation and, and I guess rapid adaptation of drone technologies, right? Because we got a, a we got drones for everything. We got drone dozers, drone oh, yeah. friggin' Reaper drones that have been decommissioned and they're flying like I can see them dropping retardant all night long, right? Like they throw <laughs> yeah. up an Overwatch and then they're flying unmanned in like some uh urban interface you know like where there's hands off and nobody's worried about hitting a wire yeah like totally takes a risk the human risk out of it the loss of life but integrating it with manned aircraft it's just going to take a lot of trust that we don't have yet i don't know oh my god for anybody who has a drone like a recreational drone out there for the love of fuck do not fly anywhere near the tfr please i don't know how many times i've had to call off ships and call out drones and say hey Cease all air operations because that's what happens. It shuts down yep. the entire air yep. operation. So Everything. for love of fuck, do not fly a drone. Any public <laughs> listening to this or you have to be a firefighter and flying a drone, don't do this. Yeah. Or it's, if your Uncle Rick's a general aviation guy and flies his 172, let's go check out that smoke bomb. I mean, we just have just as many that's right, intrusions yep. Fallon, that yeah. the same, Cessnas same too. Fire. Jesus, man. Yeah, well, except they, they come by to look at it in F-18s, right? Yeah. yeah. There's that too. This is also fun. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think right tool for the right job. I think that what you guys are saying there, there, it's just not like there yet as far as widespread adaptation or adoption. Adoption. Jesus, I can't talk. Um, it's getting there though, and I can totally understand understand the utility for like unmanned uh, aerial drops or unmanned Overwatch or like not committing people to that steep shitty canyon and being able to fly a relatively well, very affordable PSD mission to that place and burning mm-hmm. it out. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, the, the, I don't know a ton about the drone program, but what, what I do know and the, this, um, they don't call them drones anymore. The unmanned aircraft. Is that it? It's a remote piloted remote remote systems, remote systems. We'll just call them remote systems. RPRS. So, all right. The, the remote, the remote remote systems, (laughs) I, you know, the, the information they share, the, the technologies it's there, like with the, the the PSC machines, like the, that's that's pretty wild. Like the night burning, the, the IR cameras, like that. Yeah, that, yeah. but you look at cool the way the budgets come out, right? Like, so your budget has come down to your state to staff your positions to fight fire in your state. If you don't have that model, then why would you have a remote aerial ignition program? Because all they're going to do is spend all their time up in Region Six, mm-hmm. dropping in forest, 
And so like really assessing your program first and then whatever your need is, then yeah. you start to build it, to offer that. solutions to yeah. that. Need. Yeah. Not really applicable for yeah. our fuel type and topography. And yeah. especially with the amount of initial attack that we actually do. I mean, yeah. when is it, when's the last campaign fire that we've been on here in Nevada? <laughs> like legitimate camp or campaign fire. What was the one? Ta Tamarack. Okay. Okay, Tamarack, yeah. I guess, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just a little bit of it. Yeah. No, I was thinking like 18. What was the river up on Hawaii? South Sugarloaf. Oh, yeah. South Sugarloaf. We had the million acre fire out in the Hawaii desert. But even that, that was yeah. you know, three days. Yeah. Rips and quits, right? Mm -hmm. I was on a boat for like four days and I came back. There was nothing going on. <laughs> came back to self-serving. It was like the biggest fire in Nevada history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's done. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, cool, guys. I know you guys got to get out of here pretty soon. So um, I guess you guys are going to Project Discovery. Or no, you guys aren't going to Project Discovery. Everybody else went there. And they're going to go do the Donner Party thing. So We have M3 Aviation <laughs> yeah. uh, Training for Managers. Yeah. I am a desert rat now. And the Project Discovery is already gold for me. Yeah. 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 A sea tree in your book is a extra large juniper. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Over, yeah. It's a palm tree. A palm tree. <laughs> well cool guys i want to thank everybody for being on the show and kind of giving the insights to the nevada aviation program um if you guys have anything else to add before we uh cut here no thanks for having us man yeah, i appreciate yeah, you absolutely. coming down that's awesome yeah this is awesome thank man. You. this is pretty cool to get the ins and outs and see the the big picture the thirty thousand view of the aviation program but before we uh take off here let's do a real, little round robin because at the end of the show i always give the opportunity for you guys to give out a shout out to some homies heroes mentors what do you got for us but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Tyler Doggett right now. So that's a homie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just my employees, Katie, Katie Keys and Kaylee Jackson. Like I can't do it. And Kristen Pelcher, I can't do it if they're not there. Yeah, for me, I think uh I mean there's too many too many people really to mention that have helped me to get yeah. where I where I got to. At this point in my career, but yeah, the second what uh, what Singh said because Doggett was a part of that for sure, getting getting up to where I am. So, yeah, yeah uh, you know, shout out to Paul. He's retiring into this week, um, so a great leader for us. And then, yeah, nice. Tyler Doggett, uh, you know, passed away last week, April tenth. Um, a long time BLMer and um, air attack in Elko since two thousand fifteen. So, um, here's to you, brother. Right. Do you guys uh, want to talk about the service or anything like that? So, yeah, there is a celebration of life um, for Tyler. It will be at um, Baker's Barn. Baker's Barn. And there is an address on there. Um, of course, I don't have it in front of me, but it will be May, for, May 13th, um, 6 o'clock. All the homies out there know, um, you know, reach out to myself, Jeremy. Um, a lot of people know him and we're spreading it far and wide on email social media. So, um, you should be able to find it. Got yep. That. Well, thanks guys. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you around. Thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. And cheers, cheers to dog it. Cheers. Later guys. And boom, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the anchor point podcast is in the books with my good friends, Jeremy saying Lucas Ray, 
Alec Gilkachia, and Melissa Fry. Thank you guys so much for being on the show and giving us a deep dive into the aviation program and the uh, also the hidden behind the scenes stuff that we're pretty much not aware of as boots on the ground. It's uh, pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, if you have any uh, interest in becoming a wildland firefighter, specifically doing aviation stuff, well, these are the folks that you want to hit up. And I'll definitely put their uh, contact information in the show notes. That way you can get a hold of them. And also, if you want to get a hold of other people and just check out the program in Nevada, well, you can go over to nevadafireinfo.org and there you can find pretty much a rundown of everything we've been talking about over the last three episodes whether that's cruise aviation dispatch pretty much everything it's all right there in one convenient location so once again that is nevadafireinfo.org so go check it out especially if you're interested in a career or you want to learn more about the program even got some pretty good educational stuff on there so people are doing dumb stuff in the woods well point them in that direction and tell them not to be dumb (laughs) anyways jeremy luke alec Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise and knowledge. And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, there's some tasty little nuggets for the folks out there listening to this and they uh, can use that to further their career or maybe pursue a new path. So once again, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. As for the rest of you, I hope everybody is doing well. And uh, yeah, it seems like Canada is not going to be getting a break. It's uh, yeah, rough deal, raw deal over there. But I know there's some uh, crews heading up there, so be safe. Keep your heads on a swivel. And that stuff is only going to progress its way south, so buckle up. Special shout out to our sponsors. We've got Mystery Ranch, purveyors of the finest damn packs in the fire game. Go over to www.mysteryranch.com where you can check out the Backbone series. And like I said earlier, you got until May 31st to submit your story for one of those $1,000 Mystery Ranch Backbone Series scholarships. So if you want to pursue some uh, education or some professional development, now's your chance. Go do it. Hurry up. We also got a hotshot brewery. Kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. A portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com where you can get all of your tools of the trade and coffee essentials. We've got the ass movement. My man Booze, who was with me during this whole thing. We, uh, yeah, he's doing the good word of spreading the spreading the poo bearing propaganda. So go over to www.thefirewild.org and check out the ass movement where you can save 10% off your entire order site. Why? By using the code anchor point ass 10. And last but not least, we've got the smoky generation, AKA the American wildfire experience. And if you want to uh, check out the Smoky Generation grants, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out because you can also win one of these storytelling grants. It's 500 bucks up online just for telling your story. It's pretty awesome. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. And for the rest of you, y'all know the drill. Stay safe, stay savage. Peace. <laughs>